Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, Austin Kopic is joining me, and we're going to be looking at the entire astrology forecast for the year of 2024. Uh, hey, Austin, thanks for joining me. Hey, Chris, how's it going? It is going very well. I'm very excited about this forecast. We have a big year ahead of us. So um, let me give people a little overview of what we're going to be doing in this episode. So in the first half, we're going to do a broad overview of the main planetary alignments and themes this year, basically for the first two hours of this episode. Then in the third hour, we're going to go into a more detailed breakdown of each month of the year to give you an idea of the sequence and when each thing will take place that we're going to talk about in the first part. First, I want to give people an overview of some of the things we're going to be talking about, um, just to give you a preview of what we're going to be discussing during the course of this episode. So here are the major astrological alignments that are going to take place in 2024. So the biggest and one of the most consequential ones is that Pluto is going to move into Aquarius for good where it's going to transit for the next 20 years, which is a huge shift. At the same time, we have a major outer planet alignment of Uranus trine Pluto that's coming into very close orb and will get just two degrees from going exact this year, and that will intensify over the course of the rest of the decade. Additionally, Saturn is going to be getting very close to a conjunction with Neptune in Pisces this year, coming within 10 degrees of an exact conjunction, so that we're getting very close to that alignment, which then will go exact over the course of the next two to three years as well. Um, one of the most positive and interesting aspects of this year is that Jupiter is going to conjoin the planet Uranus in the sign of Taurus, uh, and that's going to take place later in April. Then immediately after that, Jupiter is going to depart from Taurus, and it's going to move into Gemini, where it will stay for a year. At that point, Jupiter will immediately trine the planet Pluto and intensify and expand some of those Pluto and Aquarius themes. And then Jupiter is also going to be squaring Saturn off and on this year with two exact hits of that in the middle of the year and then later in the year in August and December. So we're going to see um, eclipses and a continuation of the Aries-Libra eclipse series during the course of the year, which will include a great American eclipse, which is going to take place in April. That's going to be a total eclipse that will be visible across the entire uh, half of the, the continental United States. Then later in the year, we're going to get our first eclipse in the sign of Pisces and the start of a new eclipse series where the eclipses next year will start shifting from the Aries-Libra axis to the Pisces-Virgo axis. Additionally, one of the things I noticed that's coming up next year is there's going to be two comets that may be visible happening first one in April around the time of the Great American Eclipse, and then another one in October that's actually going to take place right before the U.S. presidential election. So we'll talk about that later. And then finally, at the very end of the year, Mars slows down in the signs of Cancer and Leo, and it stations retrograde at the very end of the year in December, so that that's what leads us into 2025, is a Mars retrograde in Leo and Cancer. So here's some um, diagrams for those watching the video version of this episode. This one's from Archetypal Explorer, and it shows all of the major outer planet transits that are taking place this year, many of which we will be um, talking about during the course of this episode. And then here's a similar graph that was made for me by Madeline DeCotes of honeycomb.co, 
uh, one of our sponsors, and she made this to help visualize some of the same outer planet transits that crest and peak at different parts of the year, but also where they sit in relation to some of the eclipses, as well as the two comets that are going to take place this year, where strangely, both of the comets are going to show up right around the same time as the eclipses. So we'll talk about that more in this episode. All right, so um, welcome. We're back here again. I can't believe it's been a year since our last forecast episode. And, you know, in that forecast episode, does it seem like it's been a year to you, Austin? I mean, this year went by really quickly. And yet when I think to where I was and where the world was a year ago, that was a slightly different universe. Um, you know, there was no, you know, Saturn was still in Aquarius. Um, you know, no Saturn Pisces, no Saturn Neptune um, in Pisces, no no Pluto in Aquarius, no no AI panic. Like things have uh, things have changed this year. Like things have moved in a in a different direction. Yeah, we recorded our last forecast in December of 2022, almost exactly a year ago. And what was interesting is like when we did that forecast, um, ChatGPT had just been released like a like a couple weeks earlier, a week or two earlier in late November, and we could see the very beginnings of the AI revolution. And we sort of anticipated that that was going to intensify a lot once Pluto moved into Aquarius in early 2023, which it did in pretty spectacular ways. And then also um, at that time, we could see some of the early image like AI image generation software was really starting to come out and starting to get good at that point. And we were anticipating that that would really accelerate which, once Saturn moved into Pisces in March of 2023, which it has, and it's just growing by leaps and bounds. So here we are now a year later, and so much has changed. And clearly, we're sort of standing at the precipice of entering into an even deeper and more intense um, phase of what those transits are indicating this year, with Pluto moving into Aquarius for good now for 20 years, and with the Saturn-Neptune conjunction coming to uh, closer than it's been in decades and coming within 10 degrees. Um, clearly, 2024 is going to be a really important year that will see the continuation of many themes from last year, but also um, a number of new ones as well. Yeah, 2024 is really interesting because, um, because we get um, you know, we get, we only had six weeks of Pluto and Aquarius, uh, in 2023, whereas the majority of 2024 will be Pluto and Aquarius. And so, um, that's a new thing. Like that's, that's the, the very beginning of a 20 year thing. Um, and yet 2024 also has the very end of some things we've been doing for a long time. Um, we get the last full year of Uranus and Taurus, which is a seven-year cycle. We get the very last year of just of Neptune only in Pisces, which is a fourteen-year cycle. And so, um, while we're getting a, you know a new big thing with Pluto and Aquarius, we're also just before the beginning of Uranus in Gemini, which is 2025, and Neptune in Aries, which is 2025. And so 2024 is interesting, right? It's sort of, there. there's a changing of the guard, but there's also seeing basically both Uranus and Neptune wrap up a seven-year and a 14-year cycle while Pluto, in the middle of Pluto, beginning a new 20-year one. So it's curiously located. Yeah. And that was something that came up over and over for me again, is when I looked at the major outer planet transits this year, um, they're all building into some pretty major stuff in this decade, but this is the first year where they get 
really intense and we get not just a preview, but like we put um, a full foot in the door of that new era that we're entering into. So one of them that I was looking at was like, you know, Uranus trine Pluto um, gets within two degrees this year. And so we're going to find ourselves like in this spot where it really starts ramping up before eventually starting to go exact over the next few years. Um, there's so many transits like that, like like Uranus trine Pluto, um, but also the Saturn-Neptune conjunction that you mentioned is huge. Um, so here is a graph with the Saturn-Neptune conjunction where that's going to be going exact in like 2025 and 2026, um, but it gets so close this year within 10 degrees. Like that's usually the orb at which um, a transit like that is just sort of unmistakable and in which um, you know, society really starts reflecting it in very tangible uh, ways that are are hard to ignore at that point. Yeah, there's a lot going on. It's interesting because 2024, if it were um, sort of in a void uh, compared to most years, is pretty dramatic and you know era defining. But in the middle of this decade. It's um, half of it is just sizzle reel or anticipation for 2025 and 26, which are somehow more dramatic. Um, but <laughs> but it's not because 2024 is um, is chill. Um, it's because this decade is what it is. Yeah, for sure that this is like a historic decade and we're heading into a historic turning point with some of those things you mentioned, like Uranus going into the Gemini and that being the Uranus return of the United States that astrologers have been talking about for over a decade now or anticipating because that's coincided with like three times in the past. First, the American Revolutionary War, then the Civil War, and then World War II. So it's like the US is heading into that similar phase again where the Mars-Uranus conjunction in the US birth chart is, is going to become activated again, which usually has correlated with conflicts in the past. And at the same time, we have these other major outer planet alignments that we've seen coincide with major turning points in, in the leadership and in the countries um, of other countries around the world at the same time, like the Saturn uh, Neptune conjunctions that I know you've talked about a lot in the past forecast episodes having to do with uh, countries like Russia and their history. Yeah, that's it's uh, the Saturn Neptune is a huge sort of repolarization and pivot point for Russian history, at least the last 150 years. Right. And, and so, the, and again, this, this year is just about like right before that's exact. Um, and so the exact Saturn Neptune is next year or excuse me, it's 2025 and Uranus into Gemini is next year, but we have so much in 2024 to do. Um, it's, <laughs> it's good that we get to wait a little bit because we get, you know, we, we, we get a full, we don't, you know, we don't get the, um, with Pluto and Aquarius, we got like the, you know, the teaser trailer last year, we got six weeks of Pluto and Aquarius, mm -hmm. but, um, um, it, 2024 is, let's see, is it about, it's about 40 weeks uh, 41 weeks, 40, 41 weeks of Pluto and Aquarius, the overwhelming majority. The exception in 2024 is we do a little bit more Pluto and Capricorn, but that's it. Like we're into this new, we're, uh, we're getting the, like the full season premiere 
of the Pluto and Aquarius series. It's a 20 episode series. We have only seen the teaser trailer so far. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. Let's do a section on Pluto and Aquarius. Um, I did a lot of research um, recently into Pluto and Aquarius to try to understand what's happened in the past historically better, um, because that's usually one of the main ways that astrologers can predict the future is by looking back. It's like if you see a transit coming up, especially a major one, then you just look back into the past and see what happened in the world or what happened in different people's birth charts the last time a similar transit took place. Um, and I ended up doing like a whole literature review of like Pluto and Aquarius transits over the past um, 3,000 years and found some really interesting stuff um, that I think is going to be very relevant for here. But what um, is there anything you want to say about Pluto and Aquarius or how you're experiencing it so far or things that you anticipated last year that um, and how they panned out this year for you? Uh, yeah, I suppose two things. One, um, Pluto and Aquarius means Pluto is not in Capricorn. And if your chart has been shat upon by Pluto and Capricorn, what you will actually feel when it goes into Aquarius is the lack of Pluto. For me, late Pluto and Capricorn has just been um, holding a boot on my neck. And so during that six weeks um, uh, in, the, in the second quarter of 2023, I felt the boot lift for the first time in years. And so, you know, depending on the chart, you may actually feel less Pluto. As far as um, what I was expecting, um, uh, without going into it over long, I was basically expecting, um, how should we say, sci-fi terror. Um, you know, Pluto and Aquarius as the, you know, Pluto Pluto locates our fear of the destroyer. Um, I'm thinking of Ghostbusters, where um, uh, where the the demon emerges has uh, emerges and says like, pick the form of the destroyer, and the sign that Pluto is in often picks the form of the destroyer culturally um, for more than a decade, and so. You know, with with Aquarius, I was expecting, you know, sci-fi landscapes. We have the like we have, oh, my God, what is AI going to do? We have um, um, a crazy sort of alien disclosure discourse. I haven't followed it, but I just see it all of the time. That's very uh, also very classically uh, Aquarian. Um, and, you know, there's plenty more. But, uh, you know, just the the, the sort of archetypes are, are right there. It's like, what are we, what's the the big thing, uh, the big potentially unstoppable thing that that um, sort of draws the collective mind uh, into a state of anxiety? It was really good for that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I was going through and reading historical stuff, and what I came up with was um, – like historically, this placement has been associated with technological advancements, um, government control of information, and the development of new forms of destructive weaponry. So I, I traced some different threads, and I found that um, Pluto in Aquarius in history actually really closely coincided with the development of gunpowder at first in China over a successive series of centuries where it was refined at different points, and then eventually the development of guns and the first historical um, guns that have survived and the time period in which academics think they were first introduced coincided with the Pluto and Aquarius transit um, back during the, the Middle Ages or what was the Middle Ages in the West. Um, then eventually, 
um, the transmission of guns to the West and the way that they started being used as a new sort of like weapon of war that sort of unleashed very destructive and terrible things in terms of the ability to like, you know, kill humans in new and innovative ways, but also in terms of the power that that gave different governments and different armies to do different things. Um, so that was major. Yeah, yeah one oh. thing to note is the guns. Yeah, guns are useful, but the it was cannons, which are, you know, big guns. Um, cannons uh, totally changed the dynamics of siege warfare. Um, they made building a castle and hiding inside it um, a much less favorable thing than it had been for a very, very, very long time. And so before guns were, you know, much of a rival for a longbow, uh, they totally changed the dynamics of siege warfare. Yeah, well, and that was also Pluto and Aquarius timeframes because their mm -hmm. development was very closely interlinked. Um, so I think this is very relevant um, because we have some of that going on in modern times, both in terms of new and innovative like weapons are being developed. Like I've read that um, different countries like the US are like rushing to um, install lasers on top of boats and planes and things like this partially as a, as a way to fight um, drone warfare and to be able to shoot down drones or like swarms of drones, which is also a new technology that's being developed in war. Um, and that's one piece as well as like AI and the ways in which AI itself will be um, potentially used as like a weapon of war in order for different countries to like um, accomplish different things that they want to do, as well as the need to like want to control that information. And once a country like has a new weapon or something like that, they try to develop a monopoly on it, which is one of the other things that I saw very consistently in the history of Pluto and Aquarius, like governments attempting to maintain or, or large entities attempting to maintain monopolies on things. That's interesting. The, um, yeah, there's a lot to be said there, but yeah, the, um, again, the, uh, like a lot of the Aquarius stuff seems to fit inside the near future sci-fi imaginings that people have been doing for 50 or 60 years. When you imagine lasers versus drones, like AI, you know, an AI drone swarm versus the auto targeting laser array, Right. That that feel like that's <laughs> like that's a that's a science fiction story written 45 years ago. Right. And then again, 20 years ago, um, it seems. Yeah, it seems like the Pluto and Aquarius is where all of the again, like near future. Right. The, the Pluto and Aquarius this time will not be galactic space opera sci fi, at least. I'm not expecting galactic space opera, but all of the the sort of cyberpunk dystopia, um, all, both the the how should we say both the 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 cool and terrible things about those visions are all finally ready to happen quite literally. Um, another piece of that, something you have in uh, virtually any like near future sci-fi or cyberpunk thing, is you have the human machine interface. Um, to some degree, like the uh, what? What is the uh, what is the Neuralink? Right, is the company that's working on that now? Pluto and Aquarius is twenty years. Like, we'll we'll get that um, again. We've already got drones being used for all sorts of things, military and otherwise. The arms race between how to deploy drones and how to defend against drones is happening. The AI uh, AI will be used for 
better targeting solutions, anything that it can help with. Like it's all, it's all just about here. And I know that, uh, Chris, we've talked about how a lot of this, um, hits like, uh, it's sort of here. It's sort of just around the corner, um, but it's really the uh, the the trines between Pluto and Uranus. Once Pluto is in Aquarius and Uranus is in Gemini, which is twenty twenty five to twenty thirty two, that that should be very literal and obvious. But this year is moving towards that very rapidly, and we get we get a sort of like faux pre. Uh, like a prototype version of that with the with uh, Jupiter in Gemini rather than Uranus trining Pluto and Aquarius. What other uh, what other themes did you see with Pluto and Aquarius in your in your studies, Chris? So here's my summary. Let me read it so I can get some of it out. So potential themes in 2024 include technological transfers from foreign cultures. I know that's something you've researched a lot, um, as have I. The use of science for destruction and attempts to control the flow of information. So some of the key themes I found that I summarized, I actually used AI to help me summarize some of my like 40 pages of notes. And based on what I wrote, the AI said that the five primary themes that I had found were one, powerful influence of technology. Um, Pluto representing transformation and control meets Aquarius, the innovator and the rebel. Expect major shifts in how technology shapes society, both empowering and potentially destructive. Two, information warfare and control. Governments and powerful entities will vie for control of information and new technologies, creating monopolies and censorship attempts. Um, censorship was actually a major thing that happened during the Renaissance and during the early phases of the scientific revolution when Pluto was in Aquarius, where one of the things that I noticed was that the church attempted to control and suppress some of the new discoveries that were taking place, um, including things like the heliocentric model and the discovery that the sun was the center of the solar system because of how that impacted theology, but also how that then impacted their control of power over Europe and the world at the time. That's really um, interesting. So because, let me get. Oh yeah, go ahead. I'll let me, come back. Let me to just that, get though. the other three out, and then we'll get it. We'll we'll come back. So three, technological leaps. So breakthroughs will come from both internal research and external sources, like cultural exchange or um, encounters with that which is foreign. Which, you know, in some circumstances, you could say like that which is alien, and what that actually means can mean a, a bunch of different things that we'll get into. Um, so number four. Science versus ethics, the moral dilemma of scientific advancements used for harm and the tension between curiosity and caution. And then finally, five, globalization on edge. So the interconnected world may face challenges, but the exchange of ideas and knowledge remains crucial for progress. But one of the things that we're seeing right now is a real challenge to um, the globalized world and economy that was set up in like the 1990s, where there was this belief that if everything was globalized, if trade was globalized, then different countries would become more democratic and it would lead to a lessening of wars around the world because everybody becomes interdependent. But that has seen uh, a major shock over the course of the past several years. And now many countries are starting to pull back from that and are starting to try to like produce things more in their own country instead of relying on supply chains. So what we may see as an emerging trend is um, this, this challenge to the idea of like globalization as a trade idea. So those are my main themes oh, okay, ba great. based on history. Yeah, that there's a lot of uh, meat on those bones. Um, 
So let me go back to the point where I was starting to interrupt you. Um, so um, with uh, the, the uh, Copernican, um, I don't know, discovery, but rediscovery of the fact that the earth goes around the sun rather than vice versa. Um, that, so this is the, what, 1533 to 53 span that you're talking mm -hmm. about, Pluto yeah. Aquarius. So what's interesting about that and the church trying to um, basically censor uh, information or science that contradicts the ideology uh, of the church at the time is that the church, um, the Catholic church under what was literally embroiled in what we could call a, a civil war. This is the time period that the Protestant revolution takes place. This is the time uh, period where um, uh, Henry VIII becomes the first of the, the kings in Western Europe to say, I don't care you could who you think i i'm allowed to marry right and kicks out uh the catholic church seizes the property and then brings the church under the control of the uh of of the of the country rather than vice versa um and so this was a, a period that i fixated on because um you know we all learn like oh martin luther there's a reformation that's why there are lutherans right um but the power dynamic here, I think, is the Pluto and Aquarius part, um, because it rhymes very nicely with the <clears throat> the Pluto and Aquarius at the end of the 18th century. Um, the Catholic Church in Western Europe at that point was the only authority that uh, that sovereigns, kings and queens, had to answer to. The, the Pope could validate or invalidate territorial claims, as well as having the personal leverage of, uh, of, uh, of recognizing or not recognizing a marriage of a sovereign, which of course uh, means that that means that the, the Pope had control or had some control over um, the continuation of any dynasty. Right. And that's, that's very important when you do hereditary <laughs> government, right? Succession is everything. Um, and so what we had was basically a, an overthrow of the, sort of uh, religious caste in Western Europe, which was up top. And then the the kings and queens or the royalty, um, you know, uh, were never under their thumb again. And that's very interesting to me when I think about it in terms of the uh, relative to the French Revolution, which is the next Pluto and Aquarius, the end of the 1700s, um, because then uh, the way most historians talk about the French Revolution is it is the, the growing power of the bourgeoisie and the merchant class who overthrows uh, the like the royalty and aristocracy. Right. And so you have whoever is at the top of the pyramid. Um, and this is these are, of course, Western European examples. Um, um, <clears throat> but uh, at least in Western Europe, you had this overthrow of whoever was at the very tip top of the pyramid of power. And so that's made me wonder what does um, well, it made me think two things. First, um, it brings up something that, Chris, you and I have talked about, which is that Pluto being an Aquarius means Pluto opposing Leo. Right. Mm -hmm. And Leo is the sign, you know, Leo, Leo is the crown, right? It is the, the golden crown of the sun. Um, it is the the figure in which sovereign power is condensed, whether that's the a king, a queen, a pope, the uh president, the CEO, you know, where wherever, whoever's at that that uh that central and crowning point. Um 
And so having the 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 dire forces of Pluto arrayed against that in those two previous instances um, showed a toppling of the uh, the group or cast or however you want to put it that was at the top. And so that's made me wonder what is um, you know what is at the top now? It's much easier to see these things historically than it is now. Um, and I, I can leave that as an open question, but that was, that was a theme both times. Yeah, I think, so that one you're talking about of the time period in like the 1700s, the last time Pluto was in Aquarius mm -hmm. was such an interesting period, both in terms of science and major scientific discoveries, like William Herschel discovering Uranus, the first, you know, expanding our knowledge of the solar system and the first planet discovered beyond Saturn mm -hmm. um, in the history of humanity, but also just like major political revolutions taking place. And even though, you know, the French Revolution was was the major one, um, which was the overthrow of the French monarchy. Um, but also, even though we often think about, we often talk about like the United States as having Pluto in late Capricorn because of the American Sibley chart and where the American Revolutionary War began, um, you know, once the war was fought, so much of the actual like constitution of the United States and the actual structure of the government and all the checks and balances and everything, having it divided into three parts, um, that was really put together under Pluto and Aquarius, which gives you a good idea of both, you know, some of the the highest sort of aspirations of Pluto and Aquarius in terms of creating that sort of government structure of, of a type of democracy, but also that gives you an idea of, of some of the things we're returning back to during the course of Pluto and Aquarius to revisit and potentially revise. Yeah. And that those documents are really, uh, you know, really solid example of that um, that uh, that that will and uh, I guess successful act of overturning um, a hereditary aristocracy, right? Like, what are we doing instead of hereditary aristocracy? We're going to do this. Right. And the, and the presidency, even like George Washington, you know, accepting the presidency, but then, you know, relinquishing it. Because like the, that, even that something at the, at the time was sort of revolutionary because he very well could have just become king or like stayed in power but instead setting up that president that precedent of relinquishing power after a period of time that then held up and has become you know at least in our country our form of democracy over the course of the past uh, few hundred years now yeah yeah well and again that there's that very obvious like opposing leo opposing the idea of organizing things along those lines yeah um, for so sure one thing i want to bounce back to something you said about um science but in particular, um, call it like cosmology or picture of the larger universe in which we are placed, mm -hmm. um, because the the two things you mentioned, the Copernican revolution, as well as the discovery of Uranus, those both changed the picture of the the of the larger cosmos in which we were situating Earth, right? And this is this is very Aquarius, right? This is very like star card in the tarot. Right, Aquarius, and this is also, you know, this is how you get, as we say, it's part of this sort of landscape that you get at least the idea of like aliens or alien technology, like what's out there beyond what we can see, and what are, what are we imagining the universe is shaped like? Um, and so I am not, um, I'm not uh, devoutly following 
um, development and debates in physics and cosmology. But from what I hear, um, and I'm sure there are people who know better, it seems like there are a lot of things about the picture of the universe um, that have been steady for the last 40 years or so that are beginning to be challenged. Um, I believe that there are uh, issues with the dark matter hypothesis. There are um, real problems with string theory. Um, people are theorizing the universe might be um, you know, twice as old or older than people were thinking. And whether any of these are correct or not, um, this kind of um, uh, this this kind of discussion within physics makes a lot of sense given the earlier precedents of Pluto and Aquarius changing the idea of the larger world or the larger cosmos in which the Earth is placed. That sounds that sounds about right. Like that sort of um, maybe not, maybe something else, maybe something new, maybe maybe a revision, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, when and it ties in with your previous point about like monarchy and the displacement of that is some of the scientific revolutions. It displaces humanity as the center of the solar system. Um, if, for example, we were suddenly like not the only sentient species or not the only form of life in this or not the only planet, for example, that had life, that would decentralize our you know long held beliefs of centrality that a lot of our societies are often based off of or our religions are based off of but then it would expand and create a more clear and more accurate picture of the universe at the same time and we have developments like that that are going to be happening during the course of Pluto and Aquarius and even especially this year that may contribute to that because on the one hand with AI for example humans are creating something potentially that is like a, a an alternate um, sentient species on Earth, almost like a form of alien life that humans may be living with, but also learning from because AI will think differently than humans do. And so in a way, you know, for example, chess, um, they've developed AIs that play chess that sometimes do things differently and do moves that had never been done before that then chess masters are learning from and trying to study in order to understand better the way that they're able to perceive um, mathematics and the universe and time in ways that are different than humans do, but that may you know advantage us if we learn from them. Um, and then at the same time, I know there's going to be some developments in space where, for example, this year, not too far, potentially, uh, well, yeah, this year, they're going to launch, for example, a, another probe to Europa, which is the ocean, the frozen ocean moon of um, Jupiter, I think, right? Mm -hmm. um, not, yeah, not Saturn. So Jupiter and um, they're going to be trying to see eventually when that probe lands in 2030 if there is like life or microscopic life even on Europa, which if that was true would have a huge like impact in terms of our understanding of life and humanity and our, our place in the cosmos. Yeah, um, when there also might be, oh, um, yeah, new like new biological compounds that could be used for medicine or god knows what else right but yeah that um that was another thing we both we both bumped into is the um there's especially this time there's like there is the literal alien or at least the imagined literal alien life um but then we also saw uh, when we look back into the past that we have 
um, the sort of experiencing uh, people bumping cultures, bumping into each other that were so radically different that you um, you had that same experience of, of alienness on, on both sides, and then also alien technology. Um, the one of the one of the the instances that first got me thinking about alien, not in that literal outer space way, but different peoples. Um, was that during the fifteen, the fifteen thirty to fifty-ish one, um, you had the first Western Europeans landing in Japan, um, and it was, uh, I believe, it was a Spanish vessel that got blown massively off course, um, and just imagining the um, mutual shock um, at that point. Right. Like the, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe the Spaniards had heard extremely distorted tales of China from Kublai Khan's day from like reading Marco Polo or something, but landing in Japan and Japan having these Spaniards land there, right. With, uh, with firearms and, you know, like what a, um, what a, uh, how should we say, what an incredibly disorienting, but interesting moment. Yeah, um, I found other examples like that of a transmission of like foreign or almost alien technology mm -hmm. between cultures. Um, there were things like the development of paper, like paper was first developed in China. And um, I think one of the earliest like fragments of paper that exists that shows that it had been developed was from a Pluto and Aquarius period. But then over successive periods, you see eventually it start to be transmitted to the West. And for example, um, paper, they set up the first paper shop in Baghdad in 793. Um, and this was during a Pluto and Aquarius period. And that's what led to then the House of Wisdom and the proliferation of science and learning and wisdom and the ability to have huge libraries of books when you had paper where you could actually produce it more quickly and easily um, and affordably. And then eventually during successive Pluto and Aquarius periods, paper was transmitted to the West. And then eventually this led to um, large libraries in the West. Eventually it led to the printing press. Eventually the printing press then contributes to things like the Reformation and eventually to other things like the development of democracy and things like that. So um, paper as like a technology, even though it's so simple to us now, it was like a revolutionary technology at one point in time. Or another example of that that I found was the development of silk, um, again, in China. And then eventually China would trade silk for Western goods through the Silk Road. Um, but by the 500s, by fi around 550, um, the Emperor Justinian in the West, one of the Roman emperors, late Roman, like Byzantine emperors, Just Justinian, um, he hired two monks in order to send them as spies to steal silkworms and to bring them back across the Silk Road into the Roman Empire so that they could um, have control of this technology and create their own silk. And then he set up his own monopoly surrounding it. So it's like that's one of the core themes as well is like different cultures sometimes having different technologies that give them power, but then sometimes either the transmission or the attempts to steal or um, take that technology for oneself and what happens as a result of that. Yeah, right. So technological espionage. Espionage makes sense as a, as a Pluto theme, right? We're going to steal the secrets of your alien weaponry. Yeah, um, and then I, that's going to give us like power um, that we've taken from you. Yeah, and I, I'm not... 
Um, so I know uh, that makes me think about uh, firearms in Japan. I know that uh, firearms got integrated into Japanese armies very early, and I don't know if they were inspired by the Spanish designs that they encountered um, or to what degree they um, uh, they were uh, they were Chinese. Uh, the ideas were Chinese uh, imports. But I, I, I think that, I, I don't know, that that's interesting. It makes me wonder, because I know that even though um, China did a lot of gunpowder um, during the, what is it, the Yuan dynasty uh, or after the Yuan dynasty, but a lot of the, a lot of the, a lot of the gunpowder weapons um, were no longer made after like the China intentionally rolled back uh, gunpowder technology because they didn't want civil wars using gunpowder is great for kicking out the mongol dynasty um but you know they didn't want um you know uh, <laughs> uh anti-personnel artillery of for regional disputes anyway um but yeah all that makes sense yeah that's, well, uh, and that's relevant for modern times because like ai yeah. for example is a technology and there's a lot of espionage going on right now between different governments in the east and west surrounding ai or surrounding even um, technologies like microchips and how the world's most um, advanced microchips and the smallest ones are um, produced in Taiwan right now and how um, that's creating these huge tensions between China and the US and um, the different manufacturing things involved. And now the US is trying to bring production of those microchips back to the US and is currently in the process of building um, a major microchip factory in Arizona. So it's like there's interesting parallels or like echoes of some of those themes from the past here with contemporary technologies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and just to tie it back into sort of, uh, you know, again, near future sci-fi stories that have been written for 50 years, um, like um, in, uh, information, informational technological espionage is almost is a part of all of the cyberpunk everything, right? It's the like the part of that collective imagining has tons of that uh, or excuse me that is a key feature um and often the main theme of a story um so i'm gonna say so there are another um another piece of it i'm just you know just thinking about it culturally um and also transit wise is again pluto uh in aquarius will oppose things in leo well um most of our ruling class are of the Pluto and Leo generation here in the United States. You know, the Pluto and uh, Leo people are born like roughly 1940 through 60. Um, and so, you know, which uh, people refer to them as boomers. Um, but the that's a whole generation of people that's going to be having Pluto opposite Pluto, which is a transit that is impossible to live within most human lifespans during other points of the Pluto cycle. Um, Pluto in Scorpio is the very fastest part. And so with that, um, the Pluto and Leos just happen to have been born uh, as one of the few generations that will get a Pluto opposite Pluto transit. And so that's interesting if you uh, were born 40 to 60, or you know, in 1940, 1960. Um, and then it's also interesting culturally, because a lot of a lot of um, we say Western cultural norms um, were established by the Pluto and Leo generation. Um, the you know like the uh, when I think of the like Leo, you, excuse me. When I think of Leo, I think of culturally. I think of celebrity culture, um, and 
Certainly, people have been celebrated and been famous before uh, 1962. Um, you know, we have the all of the you know we have sort of cultural kings and queens. We have cultural um, you know the super celebrities, the musicians of the 60s, the hyper famous actors. Like all of this was uh, all of this was fueled by Pluto and Leo people during their youth, um, and so it makes me wonder. Um, how uh, on a collective level, um, how uh, how culture will change as Pluto goes through Aquarius, because there is this, you know, this deep there's this uh, deep his uh, deep skepticism of that um, person, that celebrated person in the center wearing the crown as a style of organization, right? The celebrity which is worshipped, and certainly celebrity seems to be on its uh, on a decline the last while. Um, but factoring Pluto in, into in Aquarius, opposing everything in Leo into that, uh, I think is a, an interesting thing to think with. Yeah, well, I mean, Pluto in, Aquari in Aquarius, opposing the natal Pluto placement of the Pluto and Leo generation from like the 1940s, the boomer generation, basically, it will be essentially the culmination of the power of that entire generation where we still have them leading countries, like for example, Trump and Biden both having Pluto in Leo and the sort of culmination of that generation's um, control of, of the world and, and of power in the world, but then also eventually the, the decline and the death of that era and the rise um, to power of the next generations finally. Yeah, I would say more like um, yeah, like last gasp, going out with a boom, <laughs> going out with a boom. Uh, didn't didn't plan that. Going out with a boom, or um, but um, yeah, that uh, that's interesting. Do you know the term extinction burst? Like when a star that's like collapsing, like has a like a a burst or something. Uh, that's not a bad application of it. I learned it in a psychological context. Um, the that basically right before someone is about to change a pattern or stop doing a behavior, they triple down on it. Hmm. It's uh, it's like if you say to yourself, "I'm gonna I'm gonna go on this strict diet on Tuesday," it's you, it's your behavior on Monday around food, right? Where you're actually you you, you eat worse than you have because um, you're about to change. Or you see this with addictions, but you just see this with behaviors in general. It's like an extinction burst of boomerdom. Right. Cause it's right. You know, like the, they're going to be um, forced off stage soon, but not quite yet. So yeah, it's for sure. Extinction burst. So um, why don't we transition to talking about some of the other major planetary stuff going on? Uh, Cause we're, you know, hilariously, we're already like 48 minutes into our recording. So just give you a time, time to think this is going to be a little bit more free flowing and perhaps longer than we were planning, but we'll see what we can do. Um, okay. so thank you. Thank you for the redirect. Yeah. I did not realize we were that far in. I thought we were just... No, I, I have a timer going and, um, yeah, so it's going to be, that's all right. We're getting through some good stuff here. We got mm -hmm. two hours to do this section. So let's talk about Saturn conjunct Neptune, because even though that started this year when Saturn first ingressed into Pisces and immediately so that we had the co-presence of Saturn and Neptune in the same sign. Um, now they're actually by June and July when Saturn and Neptune station in Pisces, they're going to be about 10 degrees apart. So the energy of that is going to become much more palpable this year and um, some of the influence in society. So 
One of the things I'm nervous about uh, with that transit um, is typically like Saturn represents reality and like concrete reality, whereas Neptune represents like fantasy and delusion. And when you get a hard aspect between those two planets, sometimes the, the fundamental meeting is having a difficult time telling the difference between what's real and what's not, or between what's true versus what's false or what's you know fake versus what's what's truth and the last time we had an alignment like this was actually around 2016 when saturn squared neptune and during the course of that year especially in the us um one of the main keywords that came out was like fake news was kind of like co was coined almost as like a buzzword that year and initially it was developed within the context of like how social media was being used and different websites were being used in order to push political propaganda in a way that was like new and different than had ever been seen before. So that fake news stories that were pushing a political agenda uh, were more numerous and were being weaponized so that people were often not able to tell what was truth versus what was not truth. And um, the, the idea of like fake news sort of came out of that. And then Trump, by the end of the year, sort of took that keyword, which was originally being used almost against him and what some of his um, political proponents were doing. And he he turned it around and made it his own sort of slogan that he applied to everyone else. And so now he called all the other news like fake news. But I think that provides one of the clearest, especially in a political context, comparison points for what 2024 is going to be like and what some of the main challenges are going to be is that people are going to be really struggling to tell the difference between what is real and what is not real um, this year with that Saturn-Neptune alignment coming into close, close contact? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a, um, the the fake news precedent is a good one, um, right? Because we, the, we, we have all, we, we have new tools for <laughs> uh, confusing things. I, I was reading something the other day. They were talking about how um, at this point, we have not much trust for images, right? Because we all know images can be manipulated, and that that distrust um, that distrust is about to move uh, uh, in or is in the process of moving into video and audio, right? Because with AI, just where it's at now is really good at mimicking voices. The video stuff is getting better, and so um, how should I say? Yeah, like the 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 amount of media which can potentially be distorted is now almost total right and it's not it's not a new thing but it's a new frontier right in this um <laughs> uh, in this march of confusion um yeah one thing well, and that's going to be huge i mean just with the rise of not just like, you know, we have AI image generators, like Midjourney just released version six a couple of days ago. And just, I saw a progression of like image generators and how much they've grown over the past year and a half. And it's just been by leaps and bounds. You can just type a short sentence into one of those image generators now, and it will create a lifelike image that you can't actually tell if it's real or not. Um, so that's going to be hugely important, but at the same time, with the rise of AI this year happening, like overlapping, um, the use of that for political purposes to push different political narr narratives or to control people's opinions or influence people's perceptions, 
Um, I think that's going to be hugely powerful and is probably going to be one of the most significant things that this year will be remembered for, because it's going to be, especially in the US, the first election in which both the AI image and video generation, as well as the um, other AI tools that can be used to generate and manipulate content, um, that that's the first year it's going to be fully unleashed in a political context. Um, that'll be one of the most notable news stories, I think, throughout this year. It'll be interesting to see how it, yeah, how it plays out, how people react, how quickly, um, how quickly people's sort of um, skepticism adapts to that. Like how many, um, how many oops, I guess I was fooled. It takes collectively um, for us to harden into uh, an enduring skepticism of the voice and the moving picture as well as the the other media that we're currently skeptical of. I think um, it's going to but... take at least a year. I mean, if you remember 2016 when that was happening, like people were still reeling from it for like a year and all of the like the media didn't know how to deal with it at first and de dealt with it very poorly and it wasn't until after that there was like a year or two period where people sort of did start getting more skeptical, but it took a while to realize that you can't just like read a headline on Facebook and assume that that website is reliable, it was a real like learning curve for like a lot of people, especially a lot of like older people. Yeah. And people are pretty stupid. So, um, yeah, there's that, but yeah, the, um, just Saturn Neptune and like, is this real? Is this not real? Just looking back at the last couple of conjunctions. Um, so Saturn Neptune in what, like 88, 88 to 91, Uranus was there too, but there was a Saturn Neptune series of Saturn Neptune conjunctions, um, in, uh, in Capricorn and, you know, the whole cold war thing just kind of stopped overnight and, you know, what a, um, what a strange end that was and was like, is this real? I'm sure so many people were like, is this real? Right. So many um, uh, um, uh, former uh, residents of the former Soviet Union were like, so we're just done. Right. Like, uh, you know, if you <laughs> I remember a little bit before the Cold War, I was born about 10 years. Uh, I had about 10 years of Cold War of life. And even I remember being like, oh, it's just over. And then back, um, you know, back to the previous one before that, which was in the early 50s in Libra. Right. That was uh, the McCarthyite era. Right. That was like the their communists uh, trying to, you know, was it uh, what is the line from Dr. Strangelove uh, uh, steal our precious bodily fluids. And like that kind of was a real thing. It was also a totally delusional thing. Right. Like that was the beginning of a very real um, and very potentially deadly rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union. Um, and it was also a totally paranoid hallucinatory thing right and so again reality it's it, it like you were saying at the beginning just comparing the principles of neptune and saturn right saturn is the verifiable 3d empirically true reality and um, neptune is what we imagine and we i wouldn't say it's inherently delusional but we can imagine things that aren't real we can imagine things that are real too but imagination is like Neptune's orbit, um, it covers a lot more ground than Saturn's orbit, right? Um, and so they're inherently confusing times. And as you said, no doubt um, some of these new uh, some of these newer technologies will help us stay confused. For sure. But you're right that 
one of the good things that will grow out of that is skepticism. And that's a, definitely in the history has been a um, key thing that has ar arisen during Saturn-Neptune points is skepticism, which can be good or can be bad. Um, mm -hmm. But some of the... Go on. Some of the notes that I wrote down just to summarize some of my points from what I was trying to learn from history were things like increased awareness of manipulative media, propaganda, and self-deception, a critical eye for recognizing hidden truths and exposing dark realities. Because one of the things is that Saturn, you know, is the, the darkest planet and often indicates the darkest side of life. So when you bring that to Neptune, sometimes it can be sort of negative fantasies or illusions. Um, skepticism of conventional wisdom leading to ironic detachment and questioning. I think we'll see a big rise in that as part of that skeptical part. Um, another facet of Saturn-Neptune that often comes up is a pervasive feeling of like sadness, despair, and loss of faith, either due to tragic events or due to major turning points that are sort of go in a way that a large group of people aren't happy with or aren't expecting that make them feel disillusioned in things like, for example, the political process. Um, collective sorrows surrounding water-related disasters, diseases, and death. So for example, the Saturn-Neptune opposition back in the mid-2000s and the major tsunami that took place, or um, also um, in New Orleans, the hurricane, Hurricane Katrina was during that Saturn-Neptune opposition. And already this year, we've seen major news stories having to do with water when Saturn um, has stationed in Pisces, which has been some of our early previews of some of the things related to that. Yeah, um, yeah. That um, I have a I have um, an example to add to some of those themes. Okay. Um, so if we bounce back to the pre the first Saturn Neptune conjunction in in the twentieth century, it's nineteen sixteen to nineteen nineteen for the co presence. This is World War One and its aftermath. Right. Skepticism. Um, if you read anything that was uh, written after World War One, it destroyed all of these um, all of these sort of narratives and this vision of warfare as like an honorable but, you know, a terrifying thing where you learn courage and discipline. Uh, World War One just nuked all of that. There was um, there was tremendous uh, one tremendous sadness, a tremendous depression, disillusionment. Um, as well as during the war, of course, confusion. Nobody thought that, you know, they thought they were going to do a, a glorious 19th century war. And it ended up being just a brutal slog, you know, um, literally trench warfare. But trench warfare, as opposed to something that we know of as awful, imagine trench warfare being a surprise. Nobody had ever done trench warfare before. It's surprise trench warfare, right? And then also surprise um uh, I believe more than half of the casualties were from disease, just sitting in a trench. You know, you, you've got that like muddiness with Saturn Neptune, mm. right? Like just being depressed, getting shelled, sitting in a trench with your foot infected, right? Like that's the, that's the sad end. Oh, uh, someone, Julie points out in the comments, um, uh, nerve gas, the, World War One. Um, so Neptune, uh, with Neptune, we talk about, um, get things that are gaseous or become cloud-like and it was an attempt to break through these solid defensive lines in trench warfare where we get the first chemical weapons we get mustard gas we get nerve gas we get all of these like literal lethal clouds um being um, um uh, sh uh, people being shelled with those so all all of those themes yeah yeah especially water stuff though with this one i think will be important yeah yeah, yeah. On the 
positive side, though, um, sometimes some of the themes I've seen that come up can be things like uh, confronting suffering can lead to greater empathy, compassion, and service. Um, and sometimes the desire to build a better world can still be present despite disillusionment and hardships. And that was something that we saw come through, or I saw that come through very clearly for um, that generation of younger people who were born with Saturn conjunct Neptune and Capricorn in the late 1980s, when they had their Saturn return, I kept seeing that that theme come up a few years ago over and over again. Interesting. That's interesting. The um, one thing that's really weird about this Saturn Neptune or characteristic about the Saturn Neptune is that it's we're in the Pisces part, but there's just as much Aries. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're doing the, the water element version and the compassion version, but Neptune and Aries, I don't think will be famous for its compassion, uh, mm -hmm. or sensitivity. Um, and so we've kind of got two, we've, uh, this, uh, the same series of conjunctions occurs in two very different, uh, keys, right? Like the, we've got, um, Neptune in Pisces is spiritual, it's sensitive, it's compassionate, um, it's inherently open, um, whereas Neptune in Aries is going to be where, where Saturn will conjoin it. Um, Neptune, uh, Aries is individualistic, um, it's fierce, um, it's martial, it's pugnacious, it's not inherently wouldn't, uh, it's not inherently open and inclusive. It's not, or it's oriented towards what can I do rather than how's everybody else doing, right? And so what's really interesting, another interesting piece of this Saturn and Neptune is this is Saturn coming to join Neptune with Neptune at the very end of its time in Pisces. And Saturn always um, gives this sense of endings um, and boundaries to things. Um, and, you know, once this has passed, what will last, right? Like what will, what will remain of this? And so in some ways we're seeing a really focused version of what are we going to, how should we say, what are the lasting effects of Neptune's passage through Pisces over the last decade and up till now, right? And some things will, will last, right? Neptune and Pisces um, is very good for expanding human rights to more humans, Right. The the time before the abolitionist movement, um, you know, um, exploded um, and that, of course, leads to the Civil War, but also more rights for more people. Um, you know, this time during the solidly in the middle of the Saturn and Neptune years, we have um, we have gay marriage being legal in the United States. We have um, uh, with the spirituality and da 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 Neptune or excuse me slow down Austin um, <laughs> um this time astrology magic spiritual uh spiritual things have gotten much 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 more popular some of that'll stick some of it won't um another piece of that is that um psychedelics in the United States are getting legal um legally ratified for use in certain contexts right that's absolutely a Saturn and Pisces thing and we'll see which of these things basically get the Saturn stamp and get to become part of the future and which of them, you know, we'll just look back and like, Oh, that was the, you know, that was the 2000 teens and the first half of the 2020s and Neptune was in Pisces and that's just how it was. And it's not that way anymore. Yeah, for sure. I think we'll see a uh, continuing um, 
a, a development of tensions between like materialism represented by Saturn and the sort of idealism and spiritual inclination represented by Neptune um, and the need to balance skepticism with open-mindedness to new possibilities and not get caught overly in one going too far in the extreme of one direction or another, even though that'll be the tendency, I think, for many people. Um, and just also finally recognizing the limitations and the potential of both reason as well as imagination and sort of like spirituality or, or whatever you want to call it that's represented by that Neptune half of things. Yeah, the um, you, you used a term earlier, I think, uh, disillusionment. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's really the form of or the the type of skepticism we'll see a lot of because there's skepticism as just like a philosophical or epistemological approach but i think we're going to see a lot of people um who are like kind of got burned by neptune and pisces they're like oh i bought into all this and now i'm gun shy about um you know buying into anything whether that's political or spiritual I've been watching uh, some documentaries recently about Nep about uh, recent cults um, in uh, there's some good ones on Netflix um, um, that are obviously Neptune and Pisces cults. And you're like, oh, this is I knew Neptune and Pisces was doing that, too. You know, it's been fun over here in astrology land. But, uh, you know, like the, the those aren't just things that happen and have no effect. People buy, you know, people believe uh, something wilder than they ever have. And then in some cases that turns out to not match reality very well or to be a dangerous mismatch and there's like a there's a, a skepticism that's born of disillusionment um that i think is that particular saturn neptune skepticism as opposed to others for sure yeah i think that's going to be really important especially because this is we're dipping into this this year but then it's going to be an increasing feeling in the collective the following year in like 2025 and 2026. Um, so it's some sort of growing, in some instances it was described like Tarnas, for example, describes it as like a black cloud that kind of like comes in and hangs over the collective emotionally sometimes. And what mm -hmm. a great image of like Saturn, Neptune, a black or a dark cloud that's like hanging over things as kind of like a vibe sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, but on the more positive side of things or in, at least entertaining side of things, let's say, depending on your perspective, um, you know, Apple is finally going to release their big virtual reality headset this year. I think they're planning on doing it around April. So uh, one of the things that we can see coming is the interface between, on the one hand, the Saturn-Neptune conjunction, which we've talked about being the difference between what's real and what's not real and having a hard time telling the difference between the two. And at the same time, the overlapping wave of like huge um, technological changes and innovations that are going to take place this year, not just with Pluto and Aquarius, but also with the um, Jupiter-Uranus conjunction and then also Jupiter going into Gemini in May, uh, in June. So that's going to be one of the things is like VR potentially taking off and starting to take off in a more widespread way in a way it hasn't really caught on up to this point, even though companies like Facebook have been like trying to make it catch on. It hasn't been, really been working um, especially due to various technological um, hurdles that they've been encountering where like headsets make people sick. Um, but this one with Apple, if their previous track record of like different launches of different types of technologies is any clue, could be the one that makes it take off and makes it work somehow this time. If it's going to, it's got to be during Saturn, Neptune and Pisces, right? 
Right. Like if it doesn't take this time that it's, uh, you know, if it doesn't take well Saturn and Saturn Pisces, then I guess it just never takes, you know, because it's been around and it's impressive, but not particularly fun. <laughs> it's been was my experience of it five, six years ago. I was like, oh, this is cool. I don't want to do this. It's cool that this is possible. Yeah. Take it away well, now. When the way it might work is instead of being a completely immersive like virtual reality experience it seems like what they're pushing more is augmented reality and the idea mm -hmm. of being able to have overlays and see some digital displays or other things in your in your site but also yeah. being able to see parts of the real world at the same time and i think that could be the main keyword that we end up with from the next two to three year period is augmented reality as like one of the things we all remember about what happened in this part of the decade yeah, and that smells more like Saturn, Neptune, and Aries, right? Like mm -hmm. a, an actionable heads-up display, like the Terminator. Right. I like the, most of our analogies for the past year, but in the long term, often end up coming back around to like the Terminator. Well, I mean, Pluto, it's a, Terminator is a great place to go for Aquarius, um, malefics and Aquarius textures. For sure, for sure. All right, so... Let's transition into talking about one of the other major planetary alignments that actually goes exact this year, uh, which is Jupiter transiting through Taurus. And in April, it will conjoin with the planet Uranus in the sky. And this is going to be one of the most important and one of the most um, characteristic transits of this year, because this conjunction only takes place every 14 years. But um, it's one of the more positive and one of the more optimistic alignments of outer planets that takes place. And in history, it's actually coincided with some really important periods of like scientific discoveries, of developments in art and culture and music. Um, and yeah, it's one of the more positive ones. It's probably the one if I had to highlight like a really positive transit this year, this would be the one I, I want to tell people about and really emphasize. So here's a graph from Archetypal Explorer that shows you how you know, Jupiter went into Taurus. And so we already started getting some of this over the course of 2023, but it's not until 2024, specifically in April, that this conjunction actually goes into a full alignment and goes exact. So April is our target timeframe for this one. So one of the things that I saw recently that I think is tied in with this is like, you know, it's Jupiter, which is like expansion and it's Uranus, which is like um, innovative technology, but it's taking place in Taurus. And so one of the questions we've had over the past year is what does it make, what, what does it mean that that conjunction is taking place in Taurus and how does growth and expansion of technology fit with the symbolism of Taurus? And Taurus is a fixed earth sign. And one of the things we've talked about is that Taurus more than any of the three earth signs, I think often has to do with like the earth and like soil and like material, like the material experience of the universe and being grounded in that. And one of the interesting things, news stories that I saw recently is that um, Google recently published two papers where they announced that they were applying their new artificial intelligence to material science. And as a result of that, they found um, after applying AI to material science and telling the AI to go out and try to find different materials and combine different materials to create new ones, that it was able to find 
thousands and thousands of new materials that hadn't been discovered before. And then interestingly, it also told the AI to use robotics to um, test those materials to see which ones would actually work. And it found, I think, something like 800 viable new materials that could be used to make advancements in things like batteries, in faster computer chips, in solar cells and other things like that. So I think one of the major things of this Jupiter-Uranus conjunction is major advances in material sciences that are going to expand our understanding of some of the basic fundamental um, materials in the world and finding new and innovative uses for them that go beyond what we've had before in the past. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and yeah, dead on with... Um the the uranus and taurus right uranus and taurus uh historically is about um stores of value money commodities food it's about stuff right um and so new kinds of stuff that might be useful um is right up the the uranus and or right in the uranus and taurus valley um and you know it, what's interesting about that is there are several things which are bottlenecked around just like one materials problem. Like why aren't there Iron Man suits or powered armor? It's literally just battery capacity. That's the only thing that's, um, you know, that's holding, uh, <laughs> that's holding me back uh, from having uh, a set of, uh, a set of power armor with a jet pack is they can make these things and they'll run for 20 minutes. Um, and, you know, uh, there are also plenty of less absurd things um, that depend on on uh, the storage capacity of battery materials. So even though, you know, and this is very Taurus, right? Um, it seems like, uh, like a lot of times Taurus things seem so like, oh, it's a slightly better material for this or, oh, it's a slightly better fertilizer. But because... Taurus in Taurus, we have all of these fundamental inputs into the more complicated, impressive things. Um, changes at that material level, at that like uh, that fundamental input level, it can end up creating um, very large, impressive new capabilities just downstream. Yeah, for sure. And and what's crazy is like with the. AI component now with Pluto and Aquarius at the same time as this conjunction and with um, the Uranus-Pluto trine coming into alignment, which is accelerating both the Pluto and the Uranus side of things. Um, I looked up the numbers and they said that this AI found 2.2 million candidates of new materials and that um, this represented the equivalent of like 800 years of human research of what it would take us to like combine all of these or test all of these out manually as we have since back in the day, since like the days of alchemy and stuff. So it's like these things are just um, advancing human progress at a rapid rate and allowing us to do things that weren't possible previously. And that's just a preview of this because when that conjunction um, gets closer, there will probably be some more important turning point because I just have a huge list of like scientific discoveries. But one of my summaries of what I found was that these periods of Jupiter-Uranus conjunctions often coincides with periods of rapid advancement, liberation, and change, usually with positive sort of expansive outcomes, although occasionally with negative ones. Um, but some of the different yeah, there's there's a ton of different um, past ones, but some of the discoveries were like scientific breakthroughs, like Kepler's discovery, 
of um, the planets moving in ellipses rather than perfect circles. Some of the early developments in the early 20th century with quantum physics and like the foundation of quantum physics was during the conjunction that was occurring around 1900. Um, and some of the developments later in the century with like Heisenberg's work on quantum mechanic advancements was due to a Jupiter-Uranus conjunction. Um, there were also social and political rebellions like the American and French revolutions were both Jupiter-Uranus conjunctions in addition to the other outer planet transits that were happening at the time. Um, the 1968 countercultural movement, the landing on the moon, um, the Apollo 11 moon landing in 68 and 69 was this nice lineup of Jupiter, um, Uranus, Pluto, and the moon all in the sky at the same time, um, as well as other uh, developments in like flight. And some of the first flights were Jupiter-Uranus alignments. Um, even um, developments in biology back in the um, Renaissance period, like a huge work on biology was written back then, the first time that they um, started doing um, dissections and realizing that some of our knowledge of like human anatomy that we'd inherited since like Galen in the second century had been wrong um, was a Jupiter-Uranus conjunction. There's so many um, sudden expansions of horizons and sudden individual breakthroughs in the history of Jupiter-Uranus alignments that it should be a really exciting time around April. Yeah, it's um, Jupiter. It's a comfort. One of the things Jupiter does right is to confirm and support. And so with the Jupiter-Uranus conjunction, you get a confirmation of something socially or technologically or artistically um, um, revolutionary or something that's, it's like confirming a breakthrough, right? And this, we get, um, we basically get these every 13-ish years, right? So we had one in 2011 in, um, no, 2010. Yeah, 14 years. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So in 2010 in Aries and then late nineties in Aquarius, it's basically every other Uranus sign gets one of these. Um, and so it's not like a once every hundred years thing, you know, you get one every decade and a half. And again, they have, <clears throat> they, they, they both, they both support and confirm a breakthrough. Um, the last time that we had a conjunction of Jupiter and Uranus in Taurus is, um, how should we say, in line with that, but because Saturn was conjunct both of them a little darker uh, in tone. And so that was 1941. All sorts of great scientific breakthroughs being made in 1941, um, you know, because the world was at war. Um, but, you know, there it, it was nonetheless like a period where material science was very important. Um, and so, you know, a lot of those breakthroughs had to be put on the battlefield as soon as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, scientific discoveries and for individuals, sometimes um, people can write really important, expansive works or have sudden insights into the at this time in whatever their field of activity is. So I think everybody should think of it in terms of what house um, this Jupiter-Uranus conjunction is going to take place in, in Taurus and what house in your chart that is. And there may be a sudden um, burst of like insight or a sudden unexpected moment of growth and expansion where your horizons are broadened like much further than they had been before up to that point. It can be like a very liberating and a very exciting um, 
transit to have in whatever part of your chart that it takes place. Um, now, of course, there can sometimes be downsides. The downsides can include things like um, a sort of naive optimism and excess, um, an uncritical embrace of progress and rule breaking, um, as well as a feeling of like indulgence or a fleeting euphoria that like the pace of technology and of discoveries is like happening so rapidly sometimes at those times that it feels like it will just like continue on indefinitely. But as with all things, there's eventually like a drop off. Yeah. And so one of the, how should we say, revolutionary-ish flavored things that Jupiter will probably be confirming um, is the spike since Jupiter went into Taurus in sort of successful um uh, successful labor movements in the United States. Um, since Jupiter moved into Taurus in May of 2023, we had the writer's strike, we had the actor's strike, we had a big auto worker's strike, we had big uh, nurse strikes with tons of union activity. Um, and this is this is another Uranus and Taurus thing. Um, this is part of the like, you know, with Taurus, we have, we have you know, revolutionary, um, uh, revolutionary activity, um, but like at that, how should we say, that very fundamental Taurus level, right? The people who make the car that you drive, the people who, um, you know, who labor to make whatever, right? And so this Jupiter Uranus has been very good, uh, uh, very good for labor. It has also just shown a big spike of activity in that area. Um, so I would expect that to basically peak around the the Jupiter Uranus conjunction and then probably fall off once Jupiter leaves. Um another thing I'm curious about and so this is so let me frame this. So just like with Saturn's um pending conjunction to Neptune, we're looking at Neptune's last full year in Pisces with Jupiter's conjunction to Uranus that also happens during Uranus's last full year in Taurus. And so it's a little bit of a, like, uh, the, there's a little bit of similarity in terms of like, okay, what, what, um, what do we keep from this when like this, you know, when Uranus in Taurus, isn't the weather anymore, like what, uh, what remains from this, what gets in this case confirmed by Jupiter. Um, and one area that I'm very curious about, um, but don't have a prediction for, um, is cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency was not invented during Uranus and Taurus, but the Uranus and Taurus era, which began in 2018, has been, uh, has uh, neatly encloses cryptocurrency not being a niche thing, but mattering. Um, right. <clears throat> mattering to, you know, governments, to people, et cetera, et cetera, and being a, to a widespread topic of discussion. And this um, this issue with currency and Uranus and Taurus is very consistent throughout the history, um, banking and currency stuff. And what what is a store of value um, and how much value does it store and how securely is a question that comes up every time. So I don't have a I don't have a prediction, but we should see something around that time with crypto that's very telling would be what the the astrology suggests. Yeah, that's a really great point because um, you know, I've seen so many people that have Taurus prominent in their chart, especially if they have like a fixed sign rising or if you have like Taurus rising. As soon as Uranus went in, we started seeing them make major 
sometimes disruptive or liberating like changes in their life. And like some, some people, for example, I saw them like move suddenly um, to a different part of the country or a different part of the world that they've always wanted to live in, but they never could, but the, but they decided to just like do it at that point. And we saw similar things with Bitcoin, like you said, like the rise of Bitcoin into the popular consciousness as an actual like, currency that has a huge amount of value. I think when um, Jupiter goes in and confirms and expands some of those things, it will be like the final, um, not bedrock, but final um, thing that will confirm that some of those changes are permanent and are for good. And it will be that final push that's needed to um, really solidify them in the future before both of those transits are over. Yeah, um, we. it's really interesting what you're saying about um, uh, liberation and freedom, because that absolutely became part of the mindset and sort of rhetoric around cryptocurrency was like, free yourself from this, be independent of this. It, that's extremely Uranian language. Um, and that was, you know, that that's been during this Uranus in, in, Tor in Taurus period. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, what are some other meanings of Taurus? I mean, another thing with Taurus, though, that I've really come to understand and appreciate was Taurus also has a very, um, not just like sensual quality, but a, a quality where it appreciates, um, you know, getting positive reinforcement and enjoying the finer things in life. Like, yeah, Taurus well, is snobby. It's got it's it's got taste and can easily. Um, there's an interest in cultivating taste that very easily becomes snobby. It's that, but it, it's more, I'm thinking about just the appreciation of material comforts, I think is one of the things that I really have come to appreciate from Taurus is yeah. like liking, you know, foods, liking um, leisurely activities and rest, like that, which is um, sort of supports you materially. There might be something about this conjunction that represents like a new development in terms of that, of like what it means to enjoy um, material pleasures and things like that on a personal level. That's like a new development that that is hard to anticipate because it's going to be something that's like a breakthrough or is like new and innovative or revolutionary when it comes to that. Like the invention of the Snuggie. Yes, the Snuggie, but like a a 2024 version where it's like AI powered and the Snuggie like talks to you and reassures you each night as you fall asleep. A Snuggie that gets recalled because it accidentally kills people because it's right. it's controlled by a rogue AI. But yeah, yeah, that that like um you know, comfort and comfort food is very much linked to uh, Uranus and Taurus. The um the potato chip and the chocolate chip cookie were both introduced uh, during Uranus and Taurus. Well, if you think about food options, like my grocery or every grocery I go to looks very different than it did six years ago. Like there's, you know, there's gluten-free, uh, you know, gluten-free, grass-fed, you know, et cetera, et cetera, options like, you know, that used to be in the corner of the fancier health food store that are just in normal stores now. Um, you know, the, what food is available at least um, in the parts of America that I've been has changed significantly during Uranus and Taurus's time. Yeah, and we and we've talked extensively in past forecasts, both monthlies and yearlies, about Uranus and Taurus and like new developments in like lab-grown meat and like alternatives to meat and different ways of 
um, consuming different foods and things like that, and innovations there, as well as similar to Bitcoin, how during the course of Uranus and Taurus, the like widespread adoption of those things is taking place. Um, so it may be obviously like a continuation and confirmation of some of those trends, but also perhaps a new breakthrough in some of that that represents like a unique innovation at this time that that will later in retrospect think back to 2024 and realize that that was an important turning point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another sort of a less fun revolutionary breakthrough thing that Uranus and Taurus has done um, is it's made uh, the prices of physical goods um, and foods and energy inputs and agricultural inputs, it's spiked them and dropped them and spiked them. It's made them extremely volatile. Um, and the result now is that food is much more expensive than it was um, before Uranus and Taurus. There, you know, and there have been a variety of things which um, were the vehicles for these changes. There's COVID, COVID policies. Um, there's the Russo-Ukrainian war, but uh, almost all of these have ended up having this huge impact on Taurus things. How much does energy cost? How much does food cost? How much fertilizer is available? Um, and so it'll be interesting. I, I, I would like to, I think it's worth hoping that Jupiter Taurus, Jupiter helps stabilize some of the some of that volatility uh jupiter does like stability and tries to create a more stable um situation wherever it goes um so i hope that that jupiter uranus is bringing stability to those um to those prices but that may be i'll call that a hope not a prediction sure yeah and that you what you mentioned just brings up another facet that's really important of Taurus also as an earth sign, which is things having to do with like ecology, nature, gardens, and things like that. Um, so something about a new technological development that revolutionizes um, you know, things having to do with nature and ecology. So maybe things having to do with the ongoing, you know, attempts to deal with like global warming and things like that, or carbon emissions or other things that are sort of affecting nature and affecting the quality of our experience with nature, maybe some sort of development there that ends up being important in terms of of helping with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I guess one last thing, like culturally, Uranus is sort of the lightning rod for rebellious behavior, right? And so Uranus and Taurus is kind of strange because a lot of the like rebellious against the grain behavior is like, you know what, I'm going to get off the internet and go garden, right? Mm -hmm. Or like, um, I'm going to do something crazy in punk rock and move out to the country, right? right. It's looked, um, <laughs> I did that um, during my Uranus, Uranus opposition. Um, but that like, that's an interest, that, that's an interesting and awkward shape for like the Uranian punk rock energy, right? It's like, mm -hmm. I'm going to bake my own bread, <laughs> right? Yeah. It has a very like rural, uh, it's a very rural back to basics um, sort of uh, flavor to it. That's not very recognized, very, and sort of Luddite too. Um, that's not very recognizable Uranian, cottage core, thank you uh, in the comments. Um, and so what's interesting, this is the, again, this is the last year of that. Uranus goes into Gemini, where Uranus will look like Uranus, right? That's going to be, you know, hacking the mainframe, 
<laughs> right? Like that's going to look, uh, that's going to look very much more traditionally Uranus than, um, well, I'm going to turn off the internet. That's my, uh, that's my, my punk rock act for the night. Yeah. I like that. Um, or maybe organic computers could be like another version of that is another keyword that comes to mind. Um, anyway, there's lots of processor. Yeah. Like your cow. Three times also... the omega threes. Exactly. <laughs> um, all right. So that's pretty good. There's more we could say there, but I know we're going to come back to that later when we talk about some other transits. All right. I wanted to give a shout out to our sponsor for this episode, which is the Honeycomb Collective uh, Almanacs and Calendars. So Honeycomb Collective creates almanacs and wall calendars that are personalized to your natal chart to help you keep track of the celestial movements each year. When you order a honeycomb, you can customize the start month, the time zone, the house system for your charts, and more. Open your honeycomb to any day of the year, and you'll see the unique transits applying to your specific natal chart, along with the mundane transits that apply to everyone. Your honeycomb also provides dates of new moons, full moons, and eclipses, along with retrograde and direct stations for the coming year, and retrograde shadow periods for Mercury, Venus, and Mars. You can also select extra features like the Hellenistic plugin, which will track your zodiac releasing periods, highlight your annual perfections, and assess your chart for traditional planetary conditions. There's free US shipping and affordable international shipping options that are available, along with digital editions and gift cards. So six-month almanacs start at just $10 for a digital PDF and $27 for a printed planner, and 12-month printed wall calendars start at $35. So you can create your personal astrological almanac today by visiting honeycomb.co. And yeah, thanks and shout out to Honeycomb for sponsoring this episode and for creating these awesome and very affordable uh, printed almanacs, which I love because I got mine for this year. And it's actually super useful how Madeline um, does. She takes graphic art design and finds ways to, to present the astrological information in new and kind of innovative ways so that you can pack a lot of information into just a single page. Yeah, I um, when I look at the honeycomb planners, it gives me a "these darn kids are so lucky" moment consistently. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I I learned on like a little pocket uh, ephemeris. I think it was uh, I think it was a Llewellyn one. Um, and it didn't, you know, it had um, maybe a quarter of this information. There was no way to get my stuff on. Like, sure, there is value to calculating things manually up to a point. Um, you don't want to do that for every single day of, of every year. And so having all of that homework done for you, um, according to your own parameters, being able to, you know, for example, choose a Hellenistic plugin. It's so nice. Like it's such a good, um, it's a, in addition to being a good, um, sort of, uh, scheduling tool. It's a really, it's a really good learning tool. Yeah, for sure. Cause then you can see if, or how some of these transits that we're talking about in this episode will actually align with and hit your own birth chart. And if you know, for example, that that Jupiter-Uranus conjunction is going to hit your chart in a certain way on a specific date, you're going to have better context for understanding how some of these general transits are actually personalized for you in your personal life. So it's a super useful tool, both for learning as well as planning ahead for the next year. So um, yeah, shout out to Honeycomb for sponsoring this episode, and everyone should definitely check out and order an almanac or a calendar. All right. 
So why don't we transition into the next section? And the next major mundane thing that we need to talk about that's like the fourth major transit that's happening this year is that um, in May, Jupiter is going to depart from its year-long transit through Taurus, and Jupiter is going to move into the sign of Gemini for a year-long transit through that sign. So this is super important, both because um, that's going to mean something and have specific implications just in terms of what, what it means each 12 years when Jupiter goes into the sign of Gemini zodiacally, but also because its configurations are going to change. And one of the things that Jupiter does as soon as it ingresses is that it will immediately try in Pluto. And then during the course of the year, as it's transiting through um, the sign of Gemini, it'll square Saturn twice which is super critical and super important as well as one of the defining planets that's or de defining alignments that's taking place this year is that Jupiter Saturn square which goes exact in August and December. So Jupiter in Gemini um how do you feel about that transit? Well, I like it cuz it'll be on my moon. Um as far as for the rest of the people that don't have Gemini moons ruling their ascendant um, it's a really interesting and rather significant change for Jupiter because Jupiter, as we just discussed, spends the first five-ish, a little under five months of the year um, in Taurus with Uranus, like getting closer and closer to that conjunction with Uranus. Um, whereas um, in, and, you know, and in a sextile with Saturn and Pisces, and, you know, it's in an earth sign, you know, it, it's very connected to earth and uh, water planets. But then when it moves into Gemini, one, Gemini is significantly different than Taurus, you know, whereas Taurus is, uh, should we say, like, uh, very concerned with the basics, the fundamentals, you know, their textures, their utility, their value. Um, you know, Gemini is, uh, Gemini is a very, is a much more abstract playful quick sharp energy and so just that difference is very significant you know it's the difference between um soil in a pasture and um like a quick windstorm which um uh which blows through like the substance of the quick windstorm is very different from the soil of the pasture um and we also um you know, as you mentioned, we're moving from this um, from this uh, sextile, this like loose harmony with what Saturn in Pisces is trying to do to um, a hard edge square, right? You know, the square is a 90 degree angle. It's, you know, we encounter this angle whenever we come to, a, uh, whenever we, we come to a four-way stop and there's a car 90 degrees away from us, you know, like who goes first? Because if we both go at the same time, uh, there'll be a car accident. And so between squared signs, there's a real difference in quality. Um, you know, Gemini is light, fast, quick, clever, doesn't like to be pinned down. Whereas, you know, Saturn and Pisces, um, I've experienced as this like deep, heavy, um, uh, 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 um, abyssal, um, how should we put this, a submarine, right? Like I, I it's like a, a Leviathan beneath the ocean made of sadness. Um, you know, it's very heavy. It's deep, but it's very heavy. There's a melancholy to it. There's a seriousness to it, um, you know, being dragged into deep waters. And so just contrast that with like quick, light, um, quick, light, fast, clever, let's not get too deep, uh, Jupiter and Gemini. 
right? Like, you know, it, it's the sea monster trying to grab, um, you know, grab the birds, uh, reach up and grab the birds from the, uh, from beneath the ocean surface, right? It's what's quick and light, trying to avoid being dragged down and drowned uh, in those depths. So there's a real, there's a real, um, a really obvious difference in quality. Yeah, I like that you mentioned the Jupiter-Saturn uh, sextile that we start the year with, because I think that provides a really important contrast about how this year is going to go. Here's the archetypal explorer graph that just shows Jupiter and Saturn get super close to a sextile around the February, January, February timeframe. And it's like, I feel like that's, you know, it's a very flowing aspect, which, for example, I think represents. Um, on a macro level, like the economy is doing relatively well right now in terms of bouncing back from inflation and some of the things that were happening with that and the danger of some of that. And it seems like things are flowing relatively well in terms of those two energies of like growth and expansion versus consolidation, having a nice equilibrium in the first few months of the year. But then, yeah, as soon as Jupiter changes signs and goes into Gemini in May, suddenly we move into a much different relationship between those two planets and those two opposite impulses of like growth versus consolidation when we get our first square, especially in August and then again in December. But pretty much during the entire second half of the year, we have this much different energy where there's actually a conflict between the forces of like growth and expansion versus the forces of consolidation and taking things slower and holding back. And I think on the one hand, you know, to whatever extent the Jupiter-Saturn sextile represents the economy and how things are going relatively well during the first part of the year, um, it seems like there's some tensions there where maybe things slow down or run into um, difficulties or tensions due to that square in the second half of 2024. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Like the sextile, the two are working in loose harmony, right? Um, I don't know. I don't know if people would say the economy is going well, but it's moving in the right direction, right? Which is kind of sextile language. It's not this uh, glorious harmony, but at least it's moving in the right direction. And Saturn and Jupiter can move in harmony when they're in sextile. But um, Jupiter trying to Gemini hits the square to Saturn and Saturn is the slower and more immovable force, right? And so some of these, um, some of the both collective and individual um, growth moves or expansion moves uh, are going to, you know, are going to find themselves tethered to that, you know, that undersea Leviathan, right? It's like, yeah, you're not going that far, right? Like the, imagine like a bird on a, on a string. Right. It's a hundred feet, so it flies around normally until it hits the edge of that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I was looking through, I tried to approach this, the Jupiter and Gemini, partially by understanding because it's going to have that close configuration with Saturn much of the year, and there's going to be that tension between like the communicative indications of Jupiter in Gemini versus the more imaginative. Um, indications of Saturn and Pisces and what the tension is to sort of situate it within the context of that square when talking about Jupiter and Gemini. And some of the keywords that I wrote are based on different like natal charts were that it's often a powerful force for creativity, innovation, and especially communication with a number of very like imaginative writers having that placement at different points in time. Um, so there were also, though, sometimes challenges related to duality, 
ethical considerations and the need to balance imagination with practical application. One of the funniest things I found were inventors that had um, Jupiter in Gemini and um, Saturn in Pisces, especially um, Alexander Graham Bell, who invented uh, the telephone, and Thomas Edison, and some of his work with things like the light bulb and popularizing things like that, as well as uh, movies and like video, video cameras and things like that. Um, those two both had this interesting interplay between on the one hand, um, Alexander Graham Bell, he grew up, when he grew up, his mother started losing her hearing and he saw this and it actually affected him very profoundly. So there was this profound sense of like sympathy or like a challenge that came up related to that, but that ended up then provoking him and helping to send him on his life direction, developing um, not just the telephone and other things to help um, people who are deaf to hear better, but also he did a lot of work with deaf people during the course of his career in life, and his wife was also deaf. Um, so there was this interesting tension between like sometimes a challenge coming up, but the challenge and the sympathy um, prompting one to focus on the communicative element. Um, there was a similar thing with Thomas Edison, where Edison himself, who also had the same placement, himself had hearing problems and was completely deaf in one ear and only partially was able to hear in the other. Um, and his life, interestingly, when he developed things, he was also an inventor and he patented over a thousand different patents for things. He was one of the most prolific in inventors at the time in the United States. Um, but he ended up going in a direction more of focusing not on sound, but on sight with things like the light bulb and things like um, visual things related to the emergence of like movies and videos and things like that. So it's a really interesting thing that it can be a very inventive and imaginative combination are my two primary keywords for Jupiter and Gemini and Saturn and Pisces. Well, inventive in the necessity being the mother of invention way, mm -hmm. I think both of those examples do a really nice job of illustrating that if Jupiter wants to improve things if, if jupiter wants to make the good um it has to answer the question posed by saturn's limitations right neither of those are ignoring um are, are, are neither of those uh neither of those examples have the person ignoring the problem it's literally responding to the, <clears throat> the saturnian difficulty and trying to figure out a way around that yeah for sure that's yeah, that's sort of the ideal version of the square between those two. Whereas Jupiter can still Jupiter, but it not, um, how should we say, not uh, in, in a void, but in response to. Yeah. And if it was just on its own, like when I was going back and looking through periods of Jupiter and Gemini or just natives that had Jupiter and Gemini without Saturn and Pisces, some of the keywords that came up on its own were like inventiveness, inventor, communication, playfulness, a knack for languages hearing and speaking, um, having lots of words or being very verbose, Jupiter and Gemini, having varied interests in a bunch of different areas or knowing a lot or knowing a little bit about a, a lot of different things, um, learning by reading on your own or being self-taught through having this like internal motivation to like just learn everything, 
Um, experimenting or being experimental was a, a major Jupiter and Gemini thing, like trying things out and having the flexibility to test different things and do little short experiments to see what works and what doesn't. And then finally, having a knack for picking up things um, was a major Jupiter and Gemini keyword that I noticed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've also uh, I've uh, I've also seen Jupiter and Gemini positions show um, both a knack for and also luck with technological things. Um, Kate uh, Kate has Jupiter and Gemini in a very nice trine with Mercury. Um, and we've joked for years that she is blessed of the machine spirit because um, I will fuck with a printer that's not working uh, for half an hour. She'll walk up to it, press the same button, and it works fine for her. And this has been this is a phenomenon that has been witnessed by uh, several other <laughs> uh, uh, independent observers can give testimony. But it's like, oh, it's Jupiter and Gemini. Um, right. It's it's luck with these little mercurial things and these little little machine spirits. Um, and it's one thing that's interesting from an essential dignity point with Jupiter and Gemini is that Jupiter is seen to be in its exile or detriment um, in Gemini. And so there are problems where Jupiter's need for a deeper and um, greater understanding um, get ignored to do a, a quick mercurial understanding. But <clears throat> If we're doing um, essential dignity, we need to do more than just rulership. Um, the first, uh, the first decan is Jupiter ruled, and the bound of Jupiter uh, is also early in the sign, and so it's possible to have a quite dignified Jupiter and Gemini in the early part that can do tons of things. And of well, course, Jupiter is a triplicity ruler for Gemini. So like, yes, it's in its detriment, but it also has these other positive awards. Yeah, well, that's a, even more important because when Jupiter goes into early Gemini, Pluto is going to be in early Aquarius. So that trine is going to happen right away. And it's just going to really empower both of those planets, both Jupiter and Gemini, um, as well as Pluto and Aquarius. And the things that they individual meet, individually mean will just be um, exacerbated and sort of reinforced as a result of that. Yeah, um, I think, so, yeah, Jupiter will definitely go to work for Pluto's um, agenda. You know, the uh, all the things we mentioned earlier. Um, it will yeah. help bring about all of the Pluto and Aquarius things. Yeah, like that's going to be the real technological turning point this year is it's going to be the Jupiter-Uranus conjunction in April. And then immediately that's going to lead into Jupiter ingressing into Gemini and trining Pluto. And that's the real hot spot that I'm paying attention to most for the biggest technological developments with, you know, AI and uh, probably even a lot of things that we're not even expecting, um, but especially communications. Like there's something very much about communications and about things that are social and the social fabric of how communication and technology connects us as human beings that reaches a really critical turning point um, then in that time frame around the April-May time frame when Jupiter goes into Gemini. Yeah, there's definitely a lot there. Um, and in, in, in it also, I would say, foreshadows Uranus going into Gemini and making a series of trines with, with Pluto. For sure. So um, other keywords for Jupiter and Gemini, drive for innovation and invention, versatility, versatility, why am I pronouncing, mispronouncing that word, and adaptability are huge because both 
um, Jupiter and Gemini as well as Saturn and Pisces are like mutable signs. There's this huge like adaptability and versatility and also having two of something and sometimes things that seem diametrically opposite, but finding a way to bridge um, between the two is often a very characteristic thing, especially of Jupiter and Gemini. Um, openness to new ideas and perspectives is a huge Jupiter and Gemini thing. There also can be a potential for ethical considerations, though I noticed that sometimes come up with um, Jupiter and Gemini and Saturn and Pisces that can be kind of tricky. Um, like there were some things of with like Alexander Graham Bell about like patenting the telephone and another person who was patenting it in the same day and lingering like disputes about who should have gotten that patent and who you know came up with it first and things like that. And I saw that as a recurring thing that sometimes ethical considerations can come up with this square. Yeah, that makes sense. That's interesting. Well, and what's funny about the that the patent dispute, right, is it's literally who is faster. Right, which is a classic Gemini thing is speed. Right. Um, let's see. In terms of natives, I was looking besides like the inventors, like the Edisons and the um Alexander Graham Bell. There was like a recent one. I noticed like three different electronic music artists. One of the most prominent was like Trent Reznor, who has Saturn and Pisces and Jupiter and Gemini. And I thought it was really interesting how over the past decade or so he's transitioned from doing you know, just music within a somewhat electronic bent, like rock music, to scoring films. Like a lot of his major output over the past decade or so has been scoring major motion pictures where you have to um, elicit, you have to communicate something through music. And he's using electronic music to do that, which is very Jupiter and Gemini. But you then have to elicit like an emotion as a result of using music, even if it's you know, electronic music, which is artificial, and doing that successfully is actually like it takes a knack for that. And I thought that was one of the themes that's probably going to become relevant with this transit or that we might think about um, as being relevant uh, to other people like that, that also had Saturn and Pisces and Jupiter and Gemini were uh, Moby and Bjork um, to mm. give two other musical examples. So what is that? That people born in 66? Yeah, that like 1960s time frame. Um, other people, Joseph Pulitzer, who's who the Pulitzer Surprise Prize is named after, he had Saturn in Pisces and Jupiter in Gemini, which on the one hand, he had an emphasis on investigative journalism, on in innovation in entertainment and things like that. But he also pioneered what's usually called like yellow journalism or sensationalism. Um, as part of what he did at the same time, which is a more negative thing. So there were techniques that involved like exaggerations of news events, um, scandal mongering or sensationalism. Um, so some of that has a negative side, but he also focused on sensational stories that were human interest stories like crime, disasters, scandal, and sometimes um, things to push social causes that he thought were like important social issues that see, that people needed to be aware of, but he would sort of like sensationalize them. That that uh, that does a nice job of illustrating the the dual moral nature of uh, Jupiter and Gemini, right? It's like well, little little bit of um, journalistic ethics, little bit of you know selling papers. Um, one thing I would just add is and, experientially, like Jupiter in Gemini is fun, 
like when the moon is going, you know, the moon will conjoin Jupiter and Gemini 12 times while it's there. It'll be 13. Jupiter and Gemini is fun. It's not always truthful, um, <laughs> but it is, it's fun. Um, and that's worth noting that like, that's what that will feel like um, when that aspects things like Jupiter Gemini is going to try to get Saturn in Pisces to have a little fun and we'll see if that works at all. Um, but that's like, that's the energy. It's fun. Yeah, for sure. It's going to be like an explosion of like communications of like short communications of technology of playfulness, fun and other things like that. Cause like it's not just Jupiter, but there's this whole stellium of planets that moves into Gemini at that time, which I know we'll get to later. Um, but it should be a pretty exciting time where people are going to be talking a lot and having some sort of enjoyment and, and playfulness, especially surrounding something new. I'm guessing probably like a new technology, especially. Yeah, uh, maybe stimulating would be a good word. That's a good one. Um, or even overstimulating, like having such a being overstimulated by like so much news and so much communication or so much going on on like social media that you're kind of like overwhelmed. That's certainly on the menu. It's a, a new kind of digital math. Right. But I guess, you know, coming off of a month like March and April, when things are going to get crazy with the eclipses, as we'll talk about in a bit, and then the Jupiter Uranus conjunction, it's like, what if a lot of people hit a peak point of like oversaturation of just like, there's so much that they have to like check out or try to step back from it. And maybe that's part of the challenge of the square with Saturn, um, you know, having the communication mm -hmm. and the social aspect, but then getting almost kind of like burnt out sort of mentally or, or emotionally or spiritually in the Saturn and Pisces side. Yeah, I think so. Also, all those planets in Gemini um, are combust the sun that whole time, pretty much. So there's literally mm -hmm. burnout. Right. Um, other ones, what was the keyword that you used just before that of like the duality of ethical considerations or something like that? I don't know. Yeah, the moral duality of Gemini. You know, you've got good twin and evil twin. So that's kind of relevant. Same mother. It's relevant for two of my other examples. One of them is like, um, Elena Wachowski, who is one of the, the co-creator of the Matrix series, and just like how innovative the Matrix was and imaginative in bringing together a bunch of different technologies and previous like um, storylines, as well as ideas about um, technology and artificial intelligence and a sort of philosophical bent to things and wrapping that up in like the first Matrix movie. Um, as an example of somebody who had Saturn in Pisces and Jupiter in Gemini, um, as well as the fact that Lena, over the past decade, um, is trans and came out as trans and therefore has become a major sort of person who's at the forefront of um, the sort of like trans rights movements as a prominent person, also representing that sort of duality mm -hmm. um, or sort of like transness of like um, mutable signs to some extent that we were talking well, about earlier. Yeah, and Gemini being both mutable and Mercury ruled, right, is very, um, how should we say, uh, um, has a greater, has a much greater range of gender expression than like, than a lot of the, or a much greater range of gender expression is implied in Gemini than a lot of the other signs. And, <clears throat> and thinking about the, um, thinking about the matrix um, and moral binaries, right, the um like what people remember about the matrix that gets um that gets that it gets and has been repurposed in a variety of contexts is like blue pill or red pill 
right? Like it's literally a moral decision that's one or the other, right? Like that's a huge part like that introduced that idiom to American language. Right. As well as the, you know, Saturn and Pisces theme of like, if you knew your reality that you enjoy was fake and you could go to the real world, but it was like not as good, like what choice would you make? And that was actually part of the internal dilemma of the matrix before red pill and blue pill got sort of co-opted to mean something else. Right. Um, so interestingly though, with that example, my other example that I found that's a major example of somebody that had Saturn and Pisces and Jupiter and Gemini um, was J.K. Rowling. So on the one hand, you have, that's such a good example of the creativity and the communication and writing aspect of that, of somebody who created like the Harry Potter world of like wizards and created this entire backstory of this fantasy world and wrote these this series of books that just became increasingly longer and longer and more and more wordy um, in this fantasy world of like wizards on the one hand that was like this huge accomplishment but then interestingly for whatever reason with the same placement now you also have that tension and some of the ethical things of um, her movement towards uh, talking about trans issues and, and being very vocally like against trans rights and things like that evidently is sort of becoming her main thing at this point over the past decade. So it's weird seeing that theme come up again there as well. That is interesting. Yeah, the Harry Potter, I was a little little old for Harry Potter, so it's not part of my fantasy bedrock, but... Yeah, I didn't get... I was a little after my time, but I still watched the movies, um, and it was still a good series, you know, for what it was in being similar to other like fantasy series, except for children in terms of creating a very, a world that was very immersive. And um, I thought, I think that fits that theme of like Saturn and Pisces and Jupiter and Gemini very well, like a fantasy, yeah, a fantasy author, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Taking people into that deep reality or fantasy realm, but like that Saturn Pisces is being a whole hidden world that you can be enticed into. Right, whether that's a fake world in the Matrix, the real world in the Matrix, the wizarding world of Harry Potter, which I believe wasn't the the like world of sorcerers, like sort of just secretly inside the normal world. Yeah, right, exactly. And they would like enter it through, you know, essentially like a portal um in a train station. I thought buses were involved, but yeah. Um, <laughs> right. But yeah, you can see the themes. The The themes are really interesting. Yeah. And um, Rowling reportedly has Aquarius rising. So Saturn is in Pisces in the second house and it's squaring Jupiter in the fifth house. And, you know, Jupiter and Gemini in the fifth house. And she literally wrote like a bunch of children's books. And then also through marketing and through merchandise became, I think, just obscenely wealthy and like the highest paid um, author, I think, in the world at one point, making over a billion dollars with Saturn in the second house. But then also due to, you know, some of the transphobia and stuff, um, there's like a threat and a tension with that as well, with people boycotting her works recently and attempting as a result of her, her views and political views and things like that. So a lot of those tensions are all relevant there. It'll be interesting as we go into this year, if some of those themes become more prominent in the world and some of those discussions become more prominent now that we have the two biggest planets in the solar system, both in mutable signs. Interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. So 
Um, the other things on our list that are major transits this year is we have the Aries Libra Eclipse series continues. And one of the more important ones is in April, the solar eclipse in Aries is actually going to be a total eclipse, which is going to take place and, and it's going to go across most of the like eastern part of the United States. So that's a super crucial eclipse that's going to relate to the US. And it's also going to be taking place during the course of an election year. And it's sort of reminiscent of how the last great American eclipse that took place was in 2017, sort of immediately after the in the aftermath of the 2016 election when Trump was elected. And it's hard not to see some similarity or sort of like resonance between those two. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, it's, um, you know, I mean, it's easier to, some things become clearer in hindsight. Um, one thing that's interesting to me about that and just eclipses and the current, like the, the situation in the United States for the last, I don't know, let's just say since the middle of the last decade, um, is that when you run Vim Shodri Dasha on the US chart, you get the United States as being in um, uh, in an almost two decade long Rahu period, which sensitizes the U.S. to eclipses because there have been visible eclipses many many times, but um, that last one really did come at a turning point, um, and this next one also seems like it's going to come at a turning point um, in, in a way that the the eclipses haven't always signified. Um, turning points quite so clearly in the u.s um so we don't need to go into all that but basically just that running a time lord system that includes the nodes uh the u.s moved into um like a nodally sensitive period about eight years ago and that runs through the rest of the decade nice okay that makes sense well and this one's also important because it's like this the next time there's going to be an eclipse like this in the US won't be until 2045. Just to give you an idea of the rareness of this, we're talking about like 20 years until there will be an eclipse like this. It's going to cross and be visible in parts of Texas, Arkansas, Missouri, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. Um, so if people want to check it out, that'll be roughly the path of the eclipse. Um, and Related to specific events, since it's going to be a continuation of the eclipse series from 2023, where the eclipses were taking place in uh, Libra and Aries, um, you know, it will be a continuation of some of the events that coincided with that, that both in terms of our personal lives, but also in terms of world events. Um, so, of course, the biggest example of that was back in October when the eclipse in Libra took place and coincided with um, everything that started happening in Israel and Palestine at the time. So it seems clear that this next set of eclipses in Libra and Aries next year um, will represent a continuation, but also a turning point in terms of that conflict and in terms of what's happening there. So there'll undoubtedly be some new and important turning points that will take place with respect to that around the time of these eclipses first in March and April, and then again later in the year in September and October. Um, and we know, uh, yeah, so so that's one of the things that I would pay attention for in terms of those eclipses. Yeah, and the first installment of those eclipses at the end of March and early April is 
very chaotic. There are several other things happening at the same time that makes it one of our, our hot spots for the year. And we'll, we'll get onto that, but like worth noting, it's that, that first instance, um, you know, uh, right around the, uh, the straddling the equinox that, uh, shit gets a little crazy. Yeah, for sure. Um, it is going to be crazy. And so I'm not sure whether to mention that now. Let me wrap up the eclipses section by saying, um, so we're going to have Aries and Libra, and people should pay attention to where Aries and Libra falls in your chart, because that'll be a period of major beginnings and major endings for you in that part of your life with the continuation of that series. But then later in the year, in September, we're going to have the first eclipse, which is going to take place in Pisces. And that's going to be the start of a new eclipse series where the eclipses are going to start shifting towards a new set of signs, which is Pisces and Virgo over the course of the next year or year and a half after that point. So people should pay attention to that because since it's going to be the first of that series, it's going to represent a major new beginning or major ending in a new part of your life that hasn't been activated yet. So for many people, especially if Pisces is prominent in your chart, like if you have a mutable sign rising, um, then that eclipse will be very significant for you and one to watch out for. Yeah, whereas, um, you know, the uh, the other three eclipses and the the first instance will just be Aries Libra, just like uh, just like in the, the excuse me, just like in October of 2023, we start to slip into the next one next year at the end of next year. Exactly. So here's an image with the eclipses. Um, so related to that, and and this is somewhat important that I was researching, I noticed that um, there's going to be two comets that are going to appear next year that are going to be reasonably bright and may be visible um, with the naked eye. And what's weird is that both of them show up during eclipse season in both cases. So the first one's going to be happening around the time of the Aries eclipse in April. So it's not just that like eclipse season is happening. It's not just that uh, Jupiter Uranus conjunction is happening during that time or a Mars Saturn conjunction, which is also happening at that time. But also like this eclipse is going to show up and suddenly become visible or this comet is going to show up and become visible at that time as well. And there's something extremely significant about that that led me on a whole research trip over the course of the past month about ancient views on comets and whether they are interpreted as negative or positive and how ancient astrologers understood them and what they understood them to mean that was very interesting. Um, but that's going to be one of the additional astronomical and astrological factors that's layering on top of everything else to indicate a really important time period in world history around April. And what is the name of that comet? So that comet is um, Comet Pons Brooks, based on the two discover two astronomers who discovered it in the 1800s. And this comet um, passes by the Earth every 70 to 71 years. Um, comets have like ice and rock and dust on them. That's what their composition is. And when they get close to the sun and to the Earth, that's when the ice starts melting and it creates a tail behind them. And Pons Brooks will have a tail. And interestingly, in trying to read up on like whether comets are positive or negative omens in ancient astrology, I was finding indications of both. But one of the things that some of the ancient astrologers said to pay attention to is what planets, if the if the comet passes by any specific planets at that time. And one of the things that's really interesting is that 
um, that comet in April, it may be visible when the eclipse happens, when that total eclipse happens and the star sky becomes dark, you may be able to see the comet at that time. And one of the things that's interesting is at the time of the eclipse, the comet's actually going to be passing right by the Jupiter-Uranus conjunction in Taurus at that time, which may be emphasizing or sort of activating that conjunction even more. So, you know, the jury is a little bit out on whether it's going to be ultimately a positive omen or a negative omen, because that will depend partially on the color and visibility and brightness of the comet once it gets here. But there's at least one potentially positive indication that it could be a factor that's going to underline and emphasize or intensify the Jupiter-Uranus conjunction and all the things we, we said that would take place relative to that previously. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So it'll it'll be really interesting to watch that happen. And of course, to disentangle what the comet means from the rest of the very busy astrological weather that's happening at the time. But that'll that'll be really interesting to to sort of tease apart. Yeah. And then there's going to be one other comet in October as well, that is similarly maybe visible to the naked eye. And that's also going to take place right in the middle of eclipse season, right before when the uh, vice presidential, when the presidential debates are taking place, right before the US presidential election, there's going to be this visible comet in the sky, which again, seems like a very notable and important omen that will be taking place. And we'll have to pay attention to its color and brightness and visibility. Um, yeah, hopefully I do we don't get we don't get the the Game of Thrones season two comet, which signified the War of Five Kings. Yeah, well, I do have a few quotes I wanted to share, very choice quotes very quickly from ancient astrologers about what comets indicate to show you both sides of the spectrum. And some of them you're going to like, Austin, in terms of that, like the Manilius, for example, the astrologer from the first century wrote, such are the disasters which the glowing comets often proclaim. Death comes with those celestial torches which threaten earth with the blaze of pyres unceasing, since heaven and nature's self are stricken and seem doomed to share men's tomb. Wars, too, the fires pretend, and sudden insurrection, and arms uplifted in stealthy treachery. Comets also presage civil discord and strife between kin. So that's the sort of extreme side of the spectrum, and it that's some yeah. quality Doomer content. Did you like that? I thought you would like I that. It's I very. Like, I like the uh, hats off to whoever did the translation of Manilius that you read from. The language is really nice. That is from the GP Gould, um, the Loeb translation of Manilius. So everybody, that's like one of, one of those books every astrologer needs to have. Um, I found another quote from Shakespeare in one of Shakespeare's plays in the tragedy of Julius Caesar. He says, When beggars die, when beggars die, there are no comets seen. The heavens themselves blaze for the death of princes. So that's another more negative one. I found also um, Levant Laszlo of the Horai Project translated this for me from Latin. This is Servius Octus on a negative indication for comets or comets that are negative. There's a specific one that he points out and it says, the star that pulls a crooked flame like a tail after itself is called Hippias, which means horse-like. And Servius says, if it moves from the west to the east, it shows evils for Persia and Syria. If it moves towards the south, it frees Africa and Egypt from the evils and indicates destruction only for the cattle. 
If it faces the north, it presses Egypt with wars and miseries. If it moves towards the west, it oppresses Italy and the lands that stretch from Italy to Spain. And if it goes from the south to the north, it indicates freedom from external wars, but signifies domestic insurrections. So I wanted to read that to give you an idea of what some negative comments, uh, negative interpretations of certain comets were, because there's some comets that reoccur. So astrologers started to like write down what would occur every time that specific comet happened. But there were also positive comets. So just a two quick, and then I'll wrap this up, section of positive comments. So this is from the Christian writer Origen, who was citing an earlier first century CE Stoic and Egyptian priest named Karaman. And he says, it has been observed that at great events and at the most important changes of earthly affairs, stars of this kind, comets appear, which signify either changes of kingdoms or wars or whatever may happen among men, which can shake earthly affairs. And we have read in the book of comets by Karaman the Stoic how comets have sometimes appeared even when good events were about to happen, and he gives an account of these. And I found one other positive account, um, again from Servius, translated by Levant Laszlo of the Horai Project of a positive comet, where he says, there is another comet that is genuinely called comates, which means long-haired, for it is girded with hairs here and there. It is said to be pleasant. If it moves towards the east, it signifies cheerful things for this region. And if it moves towards the south, it signifies joy for Africa or Egypt. If it faces the west, the land of Italy will participate in its gift. This is said to have appeared at the time of Augustus when he gained supreme power, and therefore joy was indicated for all people then. And if it moves towards the north, it signifies universal prosperity. So there's all sorts of lore here surrounding comets and their color and direction and different things like that that I think astrologers haven't done a lot of work on in modern times. But I think there's some very interesting stuff there, and I'm preparing an episode on comets in order to, to pull together some of the ancient views, as well as to do some empirical research about what some of these comets have indicated when they've appeared at different times in the past. Yeah, what did they appear next to, right? What What other... What part of the sky, what directionality, what color were they hanging out with planets? That would be really interesting. Yeah, exactly. So, of course, you know, sometime one of the things that doing all this research on comets made me realize was in the um, Gospel of Matthew, when it talks about the star of Bethlehem, it actually describes it using very similar language to a comet. And one of the things that made me realize that they were probably intending to convey the idea that a comet showed up at the time of the birth of Jesus, which I think is very interesting. And I also plan to do an episode talking about that sometime soon. So there's this sort of idea of comets showing up sometimes at the birth of important people, um, including religious figures. And I have to note that there is an important birth that is supposed to take place around the time of April. I believe Austin is having a son. So whether that's like a good thing or whether we get the other scenario where well, you know get I'm into, not... when we get into april's astrology you can you can judge whether that's uh, uh whether it would be a savior or a destroyer yeah i'm not i'm not saying that austin's son is going to be the antichrist but i'm not not saying that austin's son's going to be the antichrist i'll just leave it there and we can we can come back we'll circle back to that later <laughs> yeah all right so those are the comets taking place in April and October. Um, 
the final things that we needed to talk about. Well, there are two other yearly things that I think are quite important, but can be very briefly discussed. One is just that the first half of the year um, is just a rampaging pile of planetary pileups. Didn't mean for that to be so alliterative. We have uh, moments with at least three or four, but often five or even six planets all in the same sign. Um, we get a bunch in Capricorn, a bunch in Aquarius and Pisces and Aries and Taurus and um, Gemini. And then, um, then the planets sort of disperse and go about um, uh, go about in more normal patterns for the rest of the year. But I have not looked at a year where there's so many stelliums so consistently for the first half of the year. Um, and so, yeah, you know, because all, all the planets are going to be lined up in just a few signs and they're actually going to be visible around the time of the eclipses. Yeah. And it's just, it starts, it starts in January um, and then gets more intense. And then the other thing that's also a very first half of the year thing um, is that Mars, uh, Mars has a very busy and somewhat disturbing schedule for the first half of the year. Um, we get Mars conjunct Pluto in Aquarius, right? First Mars Pluto conjunction Aquarius. And then we get Mars conjunct Saturn. And then we get Mars um, conjunct the North Node or Rahu, the eclipse point. And then just a little bit into the second half of year, then we get Mars Uranus. And so Mars is very busy, like making conjunctions to all of the outer, the, the slower moving planets. Um, and um, yeah. Uh, those uh, and several of those conjunctions, the conjunction with Pluto, conjunction with Saturn, conjunction with Uranus, and with Rahu, those are um, uh, those are those are uh, I guess the nice thing to say is volatile or extremely challenging combinations with Mars, and that that's just part of the character uh, of the especially the first half of the year, and then we get a little break from Mars, but then end of the year. Um, where we we start a Mars retrograde, and that Mars retrograde will include in its cycle three oppositions to Pluto. So a lot of lot of notable Mars stuff, more towards the first part of the year, but then kicking up again at the end. Yeah, that and that Mars retrograde is serious, and that's what we end the year with is this crazy kind of um, cliffhanger where Mars stations retrograde in December in the sign of Leo, and then it's going to retrograde over the next month or two back through early Leo opposing Pluto, and it's going to retrograde back into the sign of Cancer early next year, uh, early the following year of 2025. But what's crazy about it is not just that it has, because it stations opposite Pluto, so it has this extended Mars-Pluto opposition then um, during the entire last two months of the year, last few months of the year and early parts of the following year, but also Pluto first ingresses into Leo, the sign that it will retrograde in just like two days before the US presidential election. So that retrograde is going to be very much tied in with the sort of like high drama of the US presidential election and the aftermath of that in the months and weeks following it. Um, so that's something that's actually really important in terms of that is it's going to be personally relevant, of course, and everyone should pay attention to where Mars is going to go retrograde in Leo and Cancer in their personal charts, but also very important on a more national and global scale as well. Yeah, a lot of lot of Mars. Some of us are moving into a Mars perfected year early in 2024. Mm, okay, nice. 
good times. <laughs> but yeah, those were those were the two two uh, you know just the the crazy stelliums during the first half of the year, all of the Mars conjunctions during the first half of the year, and then the beginning of that retrograde at the end. Yeah, for sure. Do we have any other overarching pieces? No, those are actually all of our overarching pieces. Um, as long as we come back to that Mars piece, because it's super crucial for things, and there's a history. There's a historical cycle, actually. I need to mention, I should mention it now, so I make sure I get it in. Um, so I was talking with my friend, Nick Dagan-Best, who is like the retrograde Mars and Venus specialist. And one of the things he pointed out is that um, Mars goes retrograde in the same cycle every 79 years, and then it just shifts by about four degrees each time. So one of the things that's really important about this um, that we discovered is that um, Mars did this retrograde in this same cycle back in the late 1700s uh, when the United States, when most of the states were ratifying the Constitution. So after the Revolutionary War, when they were like setting up their system of government in the US and they were creating this, the three branches of government with different checks and balances. Um, Mars went retrograde around that time, and it partially had to do with um, a conflict about some states not wanting to ratify the Constitution, like New York, or taking longer than it should. Um, but it's very important because it means there's something about that Mars retrograde in the foundation of the US that's very important in terms of the creation of the Constitution. And so that then, was, of course, during a Pluto and Aquarius period, right? Yes, that was also during Pluto and Aquarius. And um, there's actually a couple other placements that are actually a recurrence as well, um, but I will skip that for now. So that that um, retrograde, it recurs every 79 years. The next time it recurred was in the recurred was in the 1800s, right after the Civil War. And one of the things that was happening around that time is they were trying to pass the 14th Amendment um, in the aftermath of the Civil War. And the 14th Amendment has actually been in the news recently because the 14th Amendment contained an insurrection clause where it said that if a person had sworn an oath to the country, but then later had gone against it and led an insurrection, that they wouldn't be um, able to run for a governmental office after that point or hold a governmental position, I, I think basically because it was in order to sort of punish or make it so people who had fought on the other side of the civil war who had tried to break up the union couldn't then like take major governmental positions after that point after leading an insurrection essentially so like, like, the, no jefferson davis you can't be the senator for virginia or whatever right which kind of makes sense so that was again in the 79 year cycle that was when that happened um so jump forward to 79 more years and you get to this period between 1945 and 1946, when Mars again went retrograde in the same cycle. And just after that retrograde was completed, but when Mars was still in Leo, which is the sign that it went retrograde in, um, that was when Donald Trump was born with Mars and Leo at that time. And then what's going to happen if you jump forward 79 years later is um, right as this presidential election is taking place in the, in the immediate aftermath of it this year, 
Mars is again going to go retrograde in the same spot in the zodiac for some weird reason, and it ties together a theme that runs through human through U.S. history for the entirety of its history at this point. So that's kind of crazy, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, no, it's good. Like the 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 thread, uh, the thread is very clear. It makes me want to do the seventy nine year thing with all of the Mars retrograde and see see what pops up. Yeah. Well, it just brings into play. I just discovered that last night, by the way, there's like so much research. I know you and I both did in the run up to this and so many amazing things we found um, in preparing for this. But one of the ones, of course, that I tried to focus on and pay attention to was what's going to happen to the presidential election. And that was one of the things that really jumped out. Um, so in terms of the presidential election, I wanted to say some stuff about that. Um, do you want to wait until later? Is now the time to do that, given what I just said? Um, I mean, yeah, go go ahead and do it. Okay. So, um, you know, we're going to have to wait until later in the year to make final statements, because that's not really where I'm at right th at this point. And it will be important to see how certain things fall into place. Like, for example, that we don't know yet, like, you know, who will Trump pick as his running mate? Um, and additionally, uh, I don't usually do major presidential election stuff because especially in things like this one i feel it feels too close and too personal and too personally involved to like look at it objectively even though i can see some of these different data points like that mars retrograde thing that i just saw and i have a hard time distancing my like personal preferences from looking at it objectively and saying it's definitely going to be this or definitely going to go this way um so but with the election taking place in the recurrence of a saturn neptune alignment like 2016 where the main keyword at the end of the year was fake news um, but with the added development of ai like we said earlier what happens probably this year is that ai gets weaponized for political and propaganda purposes in order to control and change and distort political narratives so right now in looking at the presidential election there's two major factors that are pointing in my mind for each side if it ends up being biden and trump as the two candidates which it very much at least to me looks like it is there's one indication in favor of biden and there's one indication in favor of trump besides the mars retrograde um, the indication in favor of Biden is that there's that eclipse in Pisces that happens in September. In every presidential election over the past 30 years, the candidate who won um, had an eclipse take place in one of the angular, the four angular houses sometime near the election. And that's worked pretty consistently as a technique. So none of the Aries or Libra eclipses are in angles for Trump or Biden. However, since Trump has such or since Biden has Sagittarius rising, the Pisces eclipse will be in his fourth house, and it will be in the tenth house of Kamala Harris, who has um, Pisces as her tenth house. So that's an indication in favor of them. On the other hand, in terms of Trump, the main thing that stands out is that his Time Lord periods, especially his zodiac releasing from a lot of spirit periods, indicate starting a major peak period that will last for nineteen years. Um, in early 2025, just after the election. And this is one of the things that threw me off in my 2016 predictions, because we looked ahead and we saw that, but it didn't make sense for him to be entering a major peak period career-wise in 2025, because we assumed that if he won the 2016 election, that he'd be departing from office after eight years by 2024 and 2025. Um, so that's 
more of an indication for Trump. He goes into a 19-year peak period, but it activates Leo. So it's his most active and important period, but it's also one of his most subjectively difficult ones because his natal Mars and Leo is contained in that sign. So those are the two major indications in terms of things that I've looked at, but I know there's tons of other stuff to look at that we'll get into in other episodes as things continue to unfold during the course of this year. Yeah, well, and something that um, we looked at um, that is relevant regardless of who the candidates are is that um, we have a perfect Mars-Pluto opposition a day and a half before the election, so they're still very close. And then you pointed out that the that Mars actually the day that Mars stations retrograde in December that's the day that the electors um, meet. Is that was that the event? It, it was a. It's close. It's like around that time, basically. You know, because the parallel in 2016 was the election happened, but then the results were delayed, and then Trump said that the election was stolen. So there's a lot of drama up until basically the point of when the electors from each state voted in December and an eclipse in Sagittarius and Biden's rising sign happened on that day. And at that point, it was pretty clear that it was locked up and Biden would take mm -hmm. over. The parallel for this election is Mars stationing retrograde in Leo when that's right, well, taking place. It, yeah. And it's right. And the the fact that the um, that meeting of the electors, big Mars event, but then also the election day is also right off a big Mars event, right? So it what it does suggest is that like that the the election is tied into that Mars cycle, right? Which doesn't station direct until well into 2025, um, and mm -hmm. takes quite a bit of time to get out of the shadow. Um, so that that indication is there. You know, if both uh, both Joe and uh, Donald die tomorrow, that's still what the election looks like. Right. It's still like this kind of these ominous Mars Pluto portents around the election. Yeah. And Mars is like conflict is clashes, it's severing and separation. And then as we learned back in October when there was the Mars Pluto square, Pluto just emphasizes and it blows up and expands and intensifies Mars's significations and takes them to extremes. So it's like extreme conflict and uh clashes and and things of that nature. Yeah, or secret fights, mm. secret power. You know, um, power plays. You know, with um, you know, with Pluto, we get power and the hidden nature of power, right? Like, so there, you might we may not see all of the fights. We probably won't, right? But th those are the indications. Yeah. So, and then eventually on inauguration day, um, the sun and Pluto, because the sun always moves into. Aquarius on inauguration day because it's always on January 20th every four years and it's always up in the 10th house because it always happens at noon so that um, sun is going to be at zero degrees of Aquarius on inauguration day but Pluto is going to be right there as well so we're going to have the first inauguration where it's a sun Pluto conjunction that's almost exact so it's really indicating the beginning of an entirely new era of um, American history at that time with this Pluto conjunction in Aquarius taking place at the same time yeah. So and Mars is still retrograde on January twentieth. Like whatever Mars is doing, probably hasn't been resolved yet. Right. So um, we'll have to continue studying this and paying attention to other indications as they arise over the next several months and see what happens. Um, there's going to be some important turning points with things like the Republican and Democratic National Convention, but especially the debates. Two of the debates in 
um, later this year in September and October fall on eclipse days. And I think those are going to be super important turning points that are going to make the election and push it towards one direction or another very strongly or very dramatically. Um, and at the same time, also, we know that whatever happens, that we're about to go into a very crucial phase in American history in 2025 with the entrance of Uranus into Gemini, um, which has coincided with the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, and World War II. Then at the same time, Russia and China will be reaching crucial turning points with the Saturn-Neptune conjunction going exact in 2025, 2026, and a little bit into 2027. And the leaders of both of those countries actually have that signature natally of Saturn conjunct Neptune, which makes it an even more important time frame and turning point um, in world history for both countries and both of those leaders. So um, I think that Clearly, we're at a very important turning point in world history at this time. And um, yeah, we'll all be watching it together to see what happens. Yeah. So I'll add one thing, um, a little bit on my perspective on the election. What I have been waiting for, um, or what I've been looking at and then therefore expecting, is that during the other Uranus and Gemini periods, the United States has had um very powerful very historic leaders we're looking at fdr lincoln and washington right um and so again this is only a pattern of three like if we had 20 and it was all the same i would feel completely certain we only have the we have these three precedents um but um the suggestion would be that we would have another president that um powerful in shaping things during a time of crisis um, and, you know, that um, sort of significant historically. And I've been wondering for years now whether we get that person in 2024 or 2028. Um, and part of my thinking has been um, the question, does the Saturn-Neptune conjunction sort of delay that leader? Um, does it ruin it? And so just the other day, uh, I went through and looked at all of the president's um, all the all of the yeah all of the people who were president of the United States during Saturn Neptune conjunctions, um, and I was kind of hoping it would give me a clear indication like they would all be total losers. Um, there were a lot of total losers. Um, you definitely get a uh, several of the the bottom uh, like the bottom ten, um, but it, it wasn't clear enough to satisfy me where like Saturn Neptune definitely cancels out effective leadership in the United States for that period. It doesn't seem to help. Um, but for me, my my question is, one, do we get another Uranus and Gemini leader who gets us through a crisis? Because um, it seems like we should. And two, if we do, do they come in 2024 or do uh, do the, the prevailing conditions delay that person's arrival to or election to 2028? Those are open questions for me. Yeah, for sure. And then at the same time, as a backdrop, while this is happening over the next, um, the rest of this decade, Pluto's transit through Aquarius is being amplified by the Uranus trine from Gemini. And we'll continue to see just the complete transformation of the world as a result of the emergence of AI and other technologies that will be developed as a result of that, as well as different tangential things that'll come out of that in terms of just rapid and, and pervasive technological transformations over the course of the next decade. So it's going to be a really interesting time to be alive, uh, both as a human as and especially as an astrologer, very like yeah. ha hashtag astrologer good. Yeah. Um, 
just on that larger context, you know, I've, I'm a big fan of thinking about history in the Jupiter-Saturn cycles, which give us these 200-year chunks. And so just one way to think about now is this is year four of a 200-year thing. We just got into this new age. Um, the, uh, the equivalent would be if we were in 1807 and... Um, um, you know, we had a Jupiter-Saturn conjunction in Earth in, uh, what, uh, 1803, 1804, um, and we're four years into a period of history that doesn't end until the early 21st century, right? We're, we're that far uh, into things, like four out of, uh, out of 200. So much to be seen. For sure. All right. Well, on that note, so I think this wraps up our broad overview section where we wanted to look at the year and the big picture issues as well as some of the timing. Um, why don't we take a little bit of a break? All right, let's do it. All right, I wanted to give a shout out to our second sponsor, which is the Chani Astrology app, which is available for both iPhone and Android. It's designed to make astrology both accessible and useful. The app combines ancient astrological wisdom with meditation and mindfulness to help you foster a relationship with the sky and support your personal growth. From personalized readings to real-time updates on how the current astrology is impacting you, it features everything you need to navigate life's ups and downs. This includes detailed birth chart breakdowns, daily horoscopes, current sky horoscopes, transit readings, intel on the current moon phase and sign, weekly sign-specific audio readings by Chani Nicholas, year-ahead forecasts, and more. So for me personally, um, the three main things that I really enjoy about the app are that one, it has a nice blend between modern and ancient astrology. Two, it uses whole sign houses by default, which is the system of house division that I use. Three, it sends you push notifications when a transit goes exact in the sky, which is a really great reminder of what's happening astrologically at any given day or, or week. And four, I also love that it's now available for Android since I'm an Android user. So the app is free to download on iOS and Android in their app stores. Just search for Chani, C-H-A-N-I, in the app store and you'll find it. Or alternatively, visit app.chani.com for more information. So yeah, those push notifications, super useful to get a nice little reminder about what's going on in the sky, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, sort of a nice compliment to the um, the print honeycomb um, uh, almanac, the like having, you know, I, I'm not on my phone all the time. Um, but if I was, I would want, I would want reminders of transits and I would want, uh, I would basically want what this app provides on it. I think it's a really, uh, really useful, compatible thing with an, with an astrological practice, with an astrological education and just sort of staying in that zone. Yeah, well, sometimes I'll get so wrapped up in like what's going on in life on a given day and something that came out of nowhere or something that's irritating or what have you, I'll sort of like forget about the transits, but then all of a sudden I'll get a notification from the app and it'll tell me like, oh, you know, Mercury just stationed retrograde. For example, the other day was a really funny reminder and I'm like, oh, that's why this is happening and then it all makes sense. So it's just good for everybody, whether a new student or an advanced one sometimes to get those little little reminders. So definitely check out the Chani app for more uh, information about that. 
and thanks to them for sponsoring this episode and allowing us to do this forecast so we could like spend the last month doing the intensive research that was necessary to present all of our findings here with everybody you know for free on YouTube and um on audio podcasts and everywhere else wherever fine podcasts are sold exactly for free all right so i want to transition into the next section i do want to mention really quickly i meant to mention the date so today we're recording this on um friday december 22nd 2023 and we started around 1 30 p.m in denver colorado with taurus rising just for the record in terms of when we're recording this and what the date is so in the next section I want to transition, we're going to do a quick run through each of the 12 months of next year of 2024 and just give a brief set of highlights of what the astrology looks like in just little brief five-minute increments um, to give you a, an idea of the sequence in which all the stuff that we've been talking about during this episode so far, the, the sequence and the order in which it's going to take place. Um, how does that sound to you? Sounds good. Sounds like we will do a victory lap or at least achieve victory at the end of this lap exactly all right so i'm going to show for the video viewers the planetary alignments calendar at the beginning of each month just so you can glance at this this is from our print calendar um, which i have up for the entire year ahead but this shows just the month ahead so let's start with the month of january what are the major highlights of january austin so with January, it's important to note that just as January begins, uh, Mercury is stationing direct. Um, as far as starting the new year off and like trying to get things moving, it's a very clear ind indication. Um, for me, the most important things about January uh, center around Mars's presence in Capricorn. Mars moves in on the 4th and is there for the rest of January and the first half of February. Mars is very strong and effective in Capricorn um, and is supported by a trine from recently stationed direct Jupiter and Taurus. Um, we also have Venus and Mercury um, join Mars and Capricorn while the sun's in Capricorn. It's a giant cap party. Um, I really see I really see January as uh, as an opportunity um, to get your shit together. Um, and in get that your shit together and scraped into exactly the pattern you want and get a good, how should we say, a good solid um, sort of ideal prototype month in before all the chaotic bullshit happens because there's a whole lot that happens in this first half of the year. And so I am grateful that the first part really provides an opportunity to um, to to uh, to at least practice doing it and living as you would like to um, before, you know, you have to deal with getting buffeted and blown off course. So I would say, you know, take all of that like cliche, um, start your new year, right, your new year off right stuff seriously this year. Yeah, I fully endorse that message. I think that's a great message. And I also like the that we mentioned earlier the jupiter saturn sextile that's happening at this time because it's really going exact in january and february and you get the full impact of that jupiter station so that um you know especially whatever the jupiter or the taurus area of your chart is with jupiter stationing direct there then beginning its final run through taurus you know use or take advantage of that to do uh, and finalize some of the cycles of growth and expansion that have been happening there over the past year, use this time to really make those permanent, like whatever the good growth and expansion themes are in that part of your life. Yeah, it, lay the concrete and have it dry 
um, by the end of January. And so then you have um, a set pattern that can weather some storms. Yeah. And um, Lisa did ask me to mention the auspicious election for this month for January, which is January 12th, 2024 at eight o'clock AM with Aquarius rising. If you do that, then you'll have Saturn ruling the ascendant and you'll have Jupiter sextiling that Saturn very closely around five degrees, which is very good for an electional uh, chart. So um, I'm not going to go into that further. I'll save that for the auspicious elections podcast that Lisa and I do um, that we're about to put out over the next week, which is available to patrons of the astrology podcast who sign up uh, through our page on Patreon. But that's the election of the month, January 12th, 2024, eight o'clock a.m., Taurus or Aquarius rising. Yeah. Right. And so, right. And so then we have one thing that happens in January that's super important that leads directly into what's important about February, which is Pluto's re not regress, re ingress um, back into Aquarius. Um, and so the sun and Pluto make one final conjunction at 2959 Capricorn sun moves into Aquarius and then Pluto moves into Aquarius on the 20th. Um, and that, um, that ingress of Pluto in Aquarius really tells us, uh, or as we say, really tells us is, um, is the anchor for what's most interesting about February, February, <clears throat> February brings us um a pile of planets in aquarius just like we had a pile of planets in capricorn um but more importantly we get mercury and venus and mars's first conjunctions with pluto in aquarius and that's between the 5th and the 16th right so over 11 days three planets all make their first conjunction to pluto in aquarius so if you're looking for um if you're looking for what kind of what period of time are we going to see all of the, you know, see these themes that Chris and I spent 45 minutes discussing earlier with Pluto and Aquarius, this should give us a pretty quick, um, uh, I don't know if you even preview or beginning um, to what is, what is Mercury's relationship to Pluto and Aquarius? What is Venus's and what is Mars's? Yeah. Uh, and just backing up really quickly, even that Pluto ingress on the 20th of January, when the sun ingresses at the same time, we should pay attention to what happens on that day as being symbolically important because that's exactly one year from inauguration day that'll take place the next January 20th. So it'll be mm. an interesting sort of like omen or preview of what's to come. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, as you're looking at charts, you know, think about what does it mean for four or five planets to be in cap and then four or five planets to be in Aquarius. Right. And so on, as we go through this first half of the year, it's just, you know, uh, overwhelming weight in each sign. Yeah, that Mars-Pluto conjunction on the 14th especially looks especially dramatic, intense, and similar to the Mars-Pluto square in October, um, pretty rough and, you know, potentially kind of violent or the abuse or the use of power and sometimes going too far in the use of force. Yeah. And I mean, uh, from a morbid astrologer perspective, I'm really curious, to, uh, you know, I want to see what sort of dangers Pluto and Aquarius will present. I have ideas because um, Pluto always presents some dangers and, and indicates some horrible things. And so Mars-Pluto, the first Mars-Pluto conjunction should tell us some about, you know, tell us something about what teeth the water bearer has. Yeah. But to your point, the other conjunctions will tell us some of the more 
hopefully positive sides of that, like the Mercury-Pluto conjunction on the 5th or the Venus-Pluto conjunction on the uh, 17th. Yeah, and it's interesting because we get a Venus-Mars conjunction, which those don't happen that often, um, uh, not very many degrees away from uh, that Pluto and Aquarius. So there's some interesting relational, um, uh, excuse me, collective relationship patterns that are likely to be uh, inaugurated then. Makes me think of a video game that I played a couple of years ago called Lovers in a Dangerous Space-Time. Hmm. I like that. Lovers in a Dangerous Space-Time. That is a good Aquarius and something like the Venus in, uh, in Aquarius or the Venus conjunct Pluto. Yeah, Venus, um, Mars, Pluto all together. Lovers in a Dangerous Space-Time. <laughs> I love it. Great I game, it. by the way. I'll check it out. Um, okay, so that's good for February. Let's move into March, which is a really important month, and this is where things really start to ramp up. And is one of the mo it's the beginning of one of the most important months of the year, which is basically like the end of March when eclipse season starts, and going into especially the beginning of April, which is the end of eclipse season, and then culminating with like the Jupiter Uranus conjunction at the end of April. Yeah, and so we have this sort of gathering of the the pirate fleet, like the whales, uh, all all uh, all collect for the um, like the big part Pisces conclave. Like starting at the end of February, we've got Mercury, Sun, <clears throat> Saturn, Neptune, then Venus, and then eventually at the end of the month, Mars in Pisces. Like just a you know a swarm, a school, a pod of planets in Pisces. Um, and then at the end of March, like basically once we hit the equinox, um, things turn, how, how, what's, what's the right word, Chris, um, take a turn for the dramatic. Yeah. Get, at the very least. Yeah. So uh, yeah, let's just talk about it, Cause it's just everything in Pisces, right? So, um, up until the equinox. And so, you know, um, this is a, <clears throat> this is a time where we'll see an emphasis on all of those themes that Chris and I talked about with Saturn Neptune, right? All the Saturn Neptune Pisces stuff. But then we get the equinox. Sun goes into Aries. Um, <clears throat> the sun goes into Aries, and we get our first eclipse, which is a lunar in Libra on the twenty fifth. Um, and then two weeks later, we'll get a solar in Aries. And um, right in the middle, just over the boundary into April, we've got Mercury retrograde. And meanwhile, Mars is sneaking into a conjunction with Saturn. So we have a Mars-Saturn conjunction, our first one in Pisces, um, which is by itself dangerous um, at the same time as a pair of eclipses. And it's worth noting that the uh, solar eclipse in Aries is ruled by that Mars. And just for shits and giggles, we have Mercury being retrograde um, throughout this. Just because, uh, can you know, um, why not confusion on top of all the rest? Yeah, it just reminds me of, you know, there's those years in time where it's not just one indicator, but it's like multiple indicators all piling up in the same short span of time, indicating a really important turning point in world events. That's what this feels like. And it's reminiscent of like, 
you know, when that happened in early 2020, and we just had like multiple indications lining up for a major turning point in world history at that time. Like there's something reminiscent about that here with just the number of pileups that are taking place. And then on top of that, if that wasn't enough, like a comet shows up out of nowhere during this time as well, if those other indications weren't sufficient. Um, so this first eclipse in Libra at the end of March, that's the one that's going to be the continuation of the series from October. So we should see the next development in that sequence of events that started back then. Um, and then, you know, this Mars-Saturn conjunction that happens in Pisces in the middle of April, that starts building up on the 22nd when Mars goes into Pisces. But there's something very important about that because this is the very first Mars-Saturn conjunction in Pisces. And it's the end of that series that we've had over the past several years that was in Aquarius when Saturn was transiting through Aquarius. And of course, that started um, in 2020 with the first Mars-Saturn conjunction that occurred in Aquarius during the lockdowns in like April, I think, time, the March-April timeframe. Mm -hmm. So then we were having, we've talked about this on recent forecast episodes, like um, sort of like a, a plague or like a pestilence that was unleashed uh, through the air with like COVID with that conjunction happening in an air sign. But here we have some sort of shift um, where it's taking place in a water sign and a sort of like intensification of some of the difficulties associated with that Saturn transit through Pisces. Yeah. Yeah. And the um, the Mars-Saturn cycle, which is a two-year cycle, um, you know, it uh, the Mars-Saturn conjunction, which marks the beginning and end of those, is sort of like a new moon for double malefic things. Um, and as Chris said, this will be water elements. So, you know, we'll be looking for boat-on-boat -boat violence. We'll be looking at for destructive, uh, destructive waves, destructive storms and floods, um, etc. Yeah, the water um, being polluted or like being poisoned. Um, you know, maybe this is when the orcas like stage their revolution and take over, start taking over countries. And like, that's when the, the orca war of 2024 really begins. Yeah. Or the, uh, the blue whales just start swallowing ships. Yeah, exactly. Um, when the Kraken emerges. Right. Or last year we had the submarine fiasco when Saturn stationed in Pisces and just everybody imagining what it would be like to be stuck in a submarine and then slowly running out of oxygen, something sort of like similar to that in terms of the vibes of that conjunction. Yeah, um, so it's, it's a lot like that with eclipses and Mercury retrograde. And so I would just meaningfully contrast that with what I said about January great time to like get your shit together um so that it resembles your intention and plan and pattern um this is not a good time to um uh to plan on everything going exactly to plan there's a lot of chaos here um you know this is definitely a time to do what needs to be done and adapt to what's happening it's not a, it's a very different it would be a very difficult time to try to set down a new pattern because there's just a lot going on the 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 uh the boat is rocking quite violently yeah and eclipses just have this charged and electric quality and that's a lot of what we're going to be experiencing during that time is that charge and that electricity and things just suddenly changing and some major things ending or dying at this time and other major things sprouting up or beginning at that time i think one of the phrases you used recently was like the death of one king and the beginning of another 
as the sort of like metaphor. Well, what was the metaphor you used? It was like, you know, goodbye to the old king and hello to the new one or something like that. Sounds like something I would say. Or does sound like something. the very uncomfortable interregnum uh, before the succession is decided. Sure. So, and this is the one, the Aries eclipse on April 8th is the one that's going to be across America. So it seems to relate to America in particular. And yeah, that's going to be super important. Um, so this is also the month in April, though, that gets later in the month. Once, once you get out of eclipse season, by like a week later, by the middle of April, you run into the Jupiter-Uranus conjunction that takes place and goes exact on the 19th. And so it's like I'm trying to understand and I've been trying to figure out, is it like, is this all just like one huge thing that's taking place during all of April? Or there might be like a division where it's like, because we start getting out of eclipse season, it might split the month in half. So it's like all the crazy stuff is happening during eclipse season in late March and early April. Things start to calm down. And then there's this more positive sort of counterbalancing and optimistic um, sort of um, revolutionary sort of conjunction and feeling that sort of sweeps over things by the end of the month. Because at the same time, we also have Mercury stationing direct and ending the retrograde and sort of clearing things up as well. Yeah, um, I, I think that that uh, I, I think that that division is right. Um, I like the Jupiter Uranus conjunction. I don't know that it's going to be a tonal shift towards things are mostly good now. Um, but I do think there's a big, there's a very big difference um, between our like kind of peak chaos period, the Mars Saturn eclipses and Mercury retrograde to getting done with the eclipses, like um, the sun moves out of Aries because when things move as the, you know, as the sun moves out of Aries, the other planet uh, Mercury and Venus will follow and we're going to get, you know, a pile in Taurus. We'll have, um, for some time, we'll have the Sun, Mercury, and Venus, and Jupiter, and Uranus in Taurus, um, and you know, for uh, for a goodly amount of time. Um, and then uh, here, uh, I think the spoiler for just just Jupiter Uranus goodness um, is that at the end of April, Mars moves into Aries, and Mars is mm -hmm. very strong in Aries, and this is going to put Mars with rahu it's going to put mars with the same eclipse point that just got activated um um during the solar eclipse on the 8th of april we're going to have um mars uh, mars eclipse point energy um throughout all of may um and so that's also very destabilizing mars rahu especially in areas is not a stable combination or a peaceful one sure i do think so this period though from um the later part of April forward is the the crazy technological part of the year where for some reason the pace of technology and communications explodes and really starts advancing because that's what takes us into May then. Um, that conjunction happens and then we go into May and then already we get the Jupiter ingress into Gemini by the later part of May and then all the other planets go into Gemini and just things start moving quickly. Um, communication starts like picking up hugely. There's something going on here technologically and communications wise that's very important in the April, May, early June timeframe. Yeah, especially when we get to the end of May. I think that, mm -hmm. um, you know, the Uranus uh, Jupiter in Taurus certainly has technological implications, but it has a lot of financial 
um, implications um, mm. that are, aren't going to be so abstract. I think the more like explicitly tech communication stuff is, isn't going to really hit until we get the um, the migration of all these planets into Gemini at the end of May. That's a great point. Um, so we're talking more about the Taurus stuff. It's interesting that Pluto stations at the top of the top of May on top of that. Um, is there anything else you want to mention about May here, especially the later part of May? I mean, basically just everything starts moving into Gemini at this time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like May just looks like everything in Taurus except for Mars, um, which is lighting fires left and right um, with Rahu. So the division is like here largely. Okay. So second part, second half of May, um, Jupiter goes into Gemini and we get Jupiter trine Pluto at the very beginning of June on June 2nd. So there's this huge empowerment of the on one hand where Jupiter trining um, Pluto is empowering Pluto and the transformational effect that it's having on Aquarius and like technologies. But then Pluto also is trining Jupiter and empowering the growth and expansion effect that Jupiter and Gemini is having on communications. Yeah, there's a real convergence between what they're both trying to do. Yeah, and this week is crazy because then Mercury goes into Gemini and conjoins Jupiter. Um, the Sun conjoins Venus, and we get a Sun-Venus Kazemi, which takes place in the sign of Gemini. And this is actually probably the most important Venus aspect of the year. I think you mentioned something related to that, mm -hmm. right, in terms of what we see with Venus or don't see with Venus? Yeah. Um, so, you know, during a given year, you either get a Venus retrograde or you get a Venus sun conjunction, um, a direct Venus sun conjunction. And actually, now that I'm looking and so the, the Venus sun, get the direct Venus sun conjunction, which we get uh, here in early June of 2024, um, is the reset of the Venus cycle. And one thing I should have mentioned about May and all of those uh, planets in Taurus, which are looking to Venus as ruler, um, Venus is invisible and badly combust the sun the whole time um which i think is going to make some of that taurus stuff a little bit less joyous um a, a, um there may be a focus on all the good taurus stuff but some of it will be missing because venus is you know um not here venus is with the sun we can't see venus um but then yeah in early june we get this reset of the venus cycle uh in gemini Right. We also get Mercury, Jupiter. And then later in June, we also get um, a Sun Mercury conjunction. And so, as, and it's worth noting that <clears throat> uh, Jupiter will also be uh, Jupiter, which the Sun conjoins uh, at the end of May, will also be invisible. We have all these planets in Gemini, um, and they're all resetting their cycle in relationship to the Sun and will emerge changed. That point about them being under the beams that reminds me, um, Tarnas and his work on the Jupiter-Uranus conjunctions points out that sometimes major breakthroughs, uh, scientific or other discoveries take place or are published near Jupiter-Uranus conjunctions, but sometimes they aren't recognized or they fly under the radar during the course of that conjunction itself, even though they're published then, but then later on they emerge into view and become recognized as like these huge breakthroughs or discoveries. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I, I would count on some of the uh, Jupiter Uranus stuff not getting recognized until later because there's so much going on. You know, it's coming right on the heels of that April and Mars is off burning villages. You know, it, there's a lot there's a there's a lot to distract from a well-written um, and uh, a well-written paper that advances the art. Um, speaking of that, one, of the... one thing that's. Really quick, I just want to mention, I just remember there's like a spaceship that's being launched around the time frame of, of April, and it may end up being launched around the Jupiter-Uranus conjunction, but um, flight and space travel was one of the things that came up frequently with Jupiter-Uranus conjunctions, and there may be something important about um, space travel where there's a major development. I think it's like a reusable um, ship is being launched, and it may help to boost um, not just like taking stuff into space, but also taking people into space, including like um, leisurely like trips to space. And maybe that's part that of the Jupiter. That would be a very Jupiter. Right. Yeah. Sorry. I just froze for a second. Wouldn't it? Yeah. That actually would fit very much. Leisurely is definitely a Taurus um, signification. Yeah. I mean, yeah. For the purpose of enjoyment. Um, and so another thing that happens, that's a good thing. Um, in early mid June, is that Mars leaves Aries? Because um, we've, you know, if you think about it, like since um, since February, we've had Mars Pluto, then Mars Saturn, then Mars Rahu, and so um, Mars into Taurus is a little bit of a lull. There will be there is a rather nasty Mars Uranus conjunction, but that doesn't occur until the middle of July. And so the movement of Mars into Taurus on June 9th is it's a nice like downgrade of what has been very intense Mars activity for months. Yeah, so that begins on June 9th when Mars departs from Aries and moves into Taurus. Um, at the end of the month, I see Saturn stationing here in Pisces. And this is really important because Saturn stations in Pisces and Neptune stations um, in early July, they station within like two days of each other. And this is the point where the conjunction gets the closest that it's going to get this year is in this time frame in like late June and early July. Yeah, very nice. Very nice. Yeah. So some of the like blurring between what's real and what's not real, between um, reality and illusion, between what's true and what's false, that's really being intensified around this time in late June and early July. Mm -hmm. So that takes us into July, where in the middle of the month, we find that Mars-Uranus conjunction, which is very explosive and very um, unexpected on the 15th of July. Yeah, and that happens right on top of Kaput Algol, um, which is a star with a fearsome track record as far as history goes. Um uh, Mars, uh, I found uh, 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 I found a precedent for Mars Uranus in Algol um, that's truly horrible. I'll just say, over twenty thousand people died um, who were not military combatants. Um, as a yeah, it, it was anyway. I, I don't want to like go into World War II horror, but like that was the last precedent. That was the last Mars Uranus on Algol. Um, it's a very ugly configuration. Um, you know, we're not going to have that energy the whole time Mars is in Taurus, but like that, that middle part of the, of July, like that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's worth steering around as a configuration. Mm -hmm. For sure. 
Um, yeah, so that also makes me think of like the military technologies thing that we were talking about as well. Um, yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. You know, we see a lot of um, new de new devastating weapons um, get their premiere under Mars Uranus conjunctions. Um, really quickly, any other significations like unexpected conflicts, unexpected fights, unexpected severing or separation, um, revolutionary type um, acts and, and events? I'm trying to think of anything else. Like the US has a Mars Uranus conjunction, which explains both you know, the Revolutionary War, but also sometimes like the gun culture and stuff. I, I often link to that con conjunction. Yeah, well, and just the US is, um, how should we say, um, uh, dedication to maintaining a uh, technological edge in warfare. Mm, okay. And we And we have, uh, the United States has Mars Uranus in Gemini, so it's even, even techier. For sure. Uh, speaking of that, so Mars transits into Gemini on July 20th, and that starts bringing us into the following month, which is the month of August, where we get a Mercury retrograde on August 5th that begins, I believe this is the one that begins in Virgo, right? I think it's for Virgo. Yeah. And then retrogrades back into Leo, because you actually had an observation about the Mercury retrogrades this year. Oh, um, yeah. Our, our, our Mercury retrogrades are predominantly in uh, fire signs, right? They're just, it's April, August, and December. Um, the one in August starts a little, starts uh, early in an earth sign and then spends most of the time in Leo. Um, but yeah, those are mostly in, in fire is our, uh, uh, is our Mercury retrograde pattern this year. Really quickly, if video viewers, here's a slide that shows the Mercury retrograde periods where you have the retrograde station, then the halfway point at the Kazemi where the problem set up at the retrograde starts to be resolved. And then you have the direct station. So there's the dates for those for reference. All right, back to August. We and, mentioned them. Go ahead. Right. So yeah, just a couple of things. One, it's Mercury retrograde all month or almost the entire month. And Mars's movement into Gemini, which uh, occurred late uh, July, um, it's, um, you know, puts Mars with Jupiter, which is a much friendlier pairing than uh any of the other four mars pairings that we've already done um you know that like mars jupiter can be nice especially in gemini um there's a like boldness there's like uh uh there's a how do i put this uh joyful conquering sort of energy to mars jupiter but some of that confidence may well um, go awry or need some uh, need some refinement of direction because in Gemini the Mars Jupiter is going to be looking to um, Mercury and Mercury is going to be retrograde pretty much all month. So you know, watch where you're pointing that confidence, sir. Yeah, and I don't think this one's going to be. I'm not as optimistic about this one because of what it's coinciding yeah. with, which is that Jupiter and Saturn are also making their exact their first exact square this month. Um, between Jupiter being in Gemini and Saturn in Pisces. So the tension between like growth and expansion versus consolidation, the the inherent tension between those two that's happening really comes into focus in, in August. And then Mars swoops in and conjoins Jupiter so that Jupiter is getting hit from, by both yeah. um, the fieriness and the impetuousness of Mars, as well as the coldness and the, the conservativeness of Saturn. And then Mars squares Saturn um, on the 16th itself, which is that energy of like 
stop and go, being pulled between going fast versus going slow and being stuck in a rock in a hard place. So I think that Mars conjunction with Jupiter is really going to exacerbate um, the broader tensions between um, Saturn and Jupiter and between Pisces and Gemini at this time. Yeah, that's a great point. I think that um, this looks like a lot of the um, Geminian, all, all like the, the the Jupiter and Gemini, Jupiter and friends in Gemini party that we saw in June really hit a number of stumbling points, right? Because if Jupiter and Gemini got right. excited, um, you know, oh, I'm conjoining Mercury and Venus and everybody's hanging out and like, you know, mm -hmm. like that fast, 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 fun, 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 new, new, yeah. new. Communication, like this, social, et cetera. Yeah, this is, this is, uh, this is, or this is, um, yeah, this is a real, slow down and think about it and navigate the obstacles time for Jupiter and Gemini. For sure. That's a great point. Um, so luckily at the end of the month, Mercury does station direct uh, in Leo. So we come out of the Mercury retrograde period, and then that takes us into uh, the following month. Yeah. And it's worth noting that, you know, the planets have stopped moving as one giant pack um, by the you know uh, in the in the third quarter now we've mm -hmm. got Venus well ahead of the sun we've got Venus and Libra as we enter September Venus and Libra okay nice um, one of the most notable things right at the top of September is that Pluto retrogrades back into Capricorn right on September first to begin its final pass through the the last degrees of that sign. And it'll be in Capricorn from the beginning of September until the middle of November. Then in November, Pluto moves into Aquarius for good and departs from Capricorn and goes into Aquarius for 20 years. So what's interesting about that is um, not just that Pluto goes into Capricorn, but that Uranus gets super late in Taurus as far as it's going to get this year and stations at the same time on September 1st. So in September, the Uranus-Pluto trine comes within two degrees of intensity, and that's a super, super important outer planet aspect. And one of the things that's interesting about it is it's really going to, like, um, there's other decades that have been characterized by by Uranus-Pluto alignments, like the late 1960s, for example, is the most famous one, which is the conjunction at the beginning of this cycle. Um, but we've also had other decades that have been influenced by um, Mercury or, or Pluto Uranus alignments as well. I know you talked about like the French Revolution, which was another Pluto Uranus um, alignment as well, right? Yeah, that that had a bunch of stuff going on. There's also Neptune involvement, and but I don't know that it, it, it's it's a little too complicated. I think to make a great parallel to the um, Pluto Uranus trine. Sure. Well, I did at least want to make the point that let me find it really quickly because I wanted to situate it in the context of this, of the broader cycle and what that means, which is that we had the opening of this cycle and this relationship between Uranus and Pluto in the 1960s, and especially the late 1960s with all the sort of revolutionary things that were happening during that time, but also in terms of a lot of the technological stuff that was happening at that time, where like um, personal computers the interface we use for computers, like the mouse, the first um, inklings of the internet, of email, of like using a mouse and a pointer, a lot of that was like demonstrated for the first time in 1968, 1969, right under the Uranus-Pluto conjunction. Then the next aspect we had was a Uranus-Pluto sextile in the mid-1990s when the internet emerged, 
Then in the 2010s, we had the Uranus-Pluto square, which is when <clears throat> mobile phones took over, basically, and everybody got a smartphone. And then now we're entering the next phase of that, which is the Uranus-Trine-Pluto um, during the course of this decade. And yeah, um, September, for some reason, is when it comes within two degrees, and it will be the next development in that in terms of technology, but also perhaps um, the form factor that technology takes in whatever the post-smartphone era is, whether that's like Neuralink and like controlling phones with our mind or, or computers with our mind or what, um, that's part of what's coming up here in addition to the continuation of the other liberatory and sort of like revolutionary impulses from the Uranus-Pluto conjunction of the 1960s. All right. Sorry, I just want to mention that really quickly to situate why that Uranus-Pluto um, trine is so important and why it's situated um, in September there. Yeah, we're getting really close, right? And it'll be hot, 25, 26, 27, I think even 28. Um, and so we're, this is, it gets so close this year. Not quite, mm -hmm. but very close. Yeah. And uh, the square like 10 years ago was a, a lot of it geopolitically was about the, the. Um, sorry, I'm spacing on the name. It was what the was Arab it Spring. The um, Arab Spring, that was it? The um, As soon as they moved into orb in the same signs within like two or three days, you had the whole Arab Spring thing pop off. Um, yeah. yeah. It was huge and disruptive. So um, this is going to be the next phase of that, not necessarily in being a continuation of the Arab Spring per se, but in the no. energies the energies surrounding it that are underlying sort of revolutionary mov movements like that. Um, you'll see that coming to the forefront again over the next several years, but this trine will be a nice preview of it in September. Yeah, and there's a couple other things happening in September, right? We've got uh, on a smaller scale, um, Mars is done with Gemini and moves into Cancer. Um, and so this movement into Cancer is pretty important because Mars will be in Cancer from January, oh, excuse me, January, um, September 4th until I think it's... Ooh, November 4th, but then we'll come back for another four months, three and a half, like three months in, in cancer in uh, the first part of 2025. So get to know your new friend, Mars and cancer, um, which is not the easiest sign for Mars, not easy for cancer to host Mars, not fun for Mars to be in cancer, but there's a whole lot of that on the way. And this is the beginning. Yes. Um, and very quickly, for those watching the video version, Paula Bellomini made me a nice little illustration sort of based on our, our previous illustrations uh, for the Mars retrograde period. So just going to flash that on the screen really quickly for the video viewers, the Mars retrograde from December 6th through February 23rd in terms of those degrees, but that we've got the pre-retrograde shadow period beginning October 5th when Mars passes over like 17 degrees of Cancer, and then the post-retrograde shadow period doesn't end until May 2nd when Mars passes over six degrees of Leo, which is the degree it retrograded at. So just throwing that in there for quick reference of those degrees. Um, so we also head into our second set of eclipse season in September as well, and we get the very first hit of the Pisces uh, eclipse series on the 17th of September. Yeah, and um, even though its companion will be in Libra instead of Virgo, um, this is the this is the beginning. This is the the first taste of the next 
nodal cycle, the 2025 and into 2026 uh, eclipses in Virgo and Pisces. So this first one occurs um, uh, almost like very close to Neptune. It's a lunar eclipse at the end of Pisces conjunct Neptune. Um, and this will be, yeah, this will be on the North Node side. Um, you know, could be more terrifying as eclipses go, which I'll take. There's enough terrifying stuff going on. Um, but still like the, you know, the, uh, it, it's still an entry into, uh, into the eclipse realm and all the, the sort of weird roller coaster energy, uh, things disappearing, uh, things coming out of nowhere and things disappearing back into nowhere with a greater frequency than we are comfortable with. And right around, you know, framing the equinox, just like our previous set of eclipses this year. Yeah. So that's going to be really important. And that um, eclipse series in Pisces first, and then in Virgo is going to last for over a year, I think like a year and a half after that point. Do you know when the nodes switch signs? Well, I think it's, is it early 2025? I think it's first quarter 2025. Oh, yeah. The first quarter. Yeah, I think you're right. Okay. Um, so that's important in terms of that. And one of the things that's crazy is like the presidential debates are going to take place at this time. And one of them falls like really close to that first eclipse in Pisces. And then um, the second one is going to fall right on um, the second eclipse in Libra, which is going to take place on October 2nd. So it's like just imagine we're going to be in the in the height of like the political election season here in the U.S., and then we're going to be right in the middle of like eclipse season at the same time with the chaotic, like charged um, energy that 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 comes with that. Um, where over the past couple of years, especially, we've seen a number of instances of like prominent people <clears throat> hitting a pivot point and either rising suddenly to the top or suddenly having a sudden and unexpected fall to the bottom um, at that time. And I think that's one of the things I'm going to be paying attention to there in general in the world, but also in terms of um, those presidential debates especially. Yeah, that's a great point about eclipses and races, right? Eclipses often um, will show a big reversal or or a big reversal setback, like jumping way ahead, falling way behind. You know, there's the, uh, the people talk about the October surprise, right? So eclipses are pretty good for an October surprise. And it's worth noting that Mars goes into the shadow of the upcoming retrograde just, I think, two days after the eclipse. Yeah. Well, in the Pisces eclipse, then we'll also be highlighting the and supercharging the Saturn-Neptune conjunction, which we've already talked about blurring the lines between reality and what's false or fake news and just ramping up all of the like um you know propaganda and the um illusory things that are trying to like influence things at that time and that are making the reality of the situation harder to see it's going to get supercharged by that eclipse yeah it'll, it'll be a real festival of narratives um, and then the last point I want to mention also is just with that Libra eclipse on the second of course this is the final eclipse in Libra. Um, so it will be the the continuation, but the last leg of whatever it was that began one year earlier with the eclipse in October, especially in, in terms of the Middle East, um, we'll see this eclipse as being a final point in that chapter as well, and both the continuation of it, but also the end of that chapter. 
Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, um, in October this year, the first normal lunation that's not eclipsed is pretty hellacious. Um, we have the, the full moon in Aries in October um, is tightly T-squared Mars and Pluto and Capricorn. And so, you know, we mentioned the, that that Mars-Pluto signature um, is, uh, is, is very much, or that Mars-Pluto is the signature of this upcoming Mars retrograde. It's also a signature. It's also a thing that happens right before the election, day and a half. And this, um, this full moon in October also has, it's the sun and moon squaring, uh, making a grand cross with Mars and Pluto and Cancer Capricorn. Um, and so usually, you know, usually we like to celebrate the return of the full moon, right? Um, without being eclipsed or bloodstained. Uh, but this is going to be a rough full moon. This is, um, it's another, it, October's a very meaningfully bumpy month. Yeah, I see Pluto stationing direct there in Capricorn for the final time on the 11th of October. And of course, that's going to be squaring the Libra eclipse as well as squaring that lunation in Aries that you're talking about as well. Yeah, the square gets really tight um, with uh, the, um, excuse me, with the Libra full moon. Got it. Okay. So with the Libra, you mean the Libra? Oh, sorry. Eclipse? Yeah, the, the full moon while the sun is in Libra, which is in Aries. Um, the the non-eclipse lunation after the eclipses is very rough. It's very closely square Mars and Pluto. Got it. Okay. And and with that, like last year, we came up with themes like Pluto themes are like control, manipulation, power plays, um, intrigue, and other themes like that. Yeah. Just okay. Um, metaphysical darkness. Gotcha. All right. So that brings us into November. Um, here we see Mars changing signs and moving into Leo on November 3rd, uh, which is the sign that will, it will eventually go retrograde in. So even though Mars has already entered its shadow period um, earlier in Cancer, and it will retrograde and go back to Cancer, like this to me is when the Mars um, retrograde stuff really starts to ramp up because it enters the sign that it's going to spend a while in because it slows down and stations there in December. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think from that previous full moon uh, up to this point, there's going to be plenty of Mars funkiness because we have that Mars opposite Cancer, Mars opposite Pluto in the last degree of Cancer and Capricorn. Oh, two yeah. days, two days before uh, Mars enters Leo, um, and so it's 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 already uh, it's already pretty thick by the time a Mars moves into Leo. That's a good point, especially with Pluto stationing um, in mid-October. What are some keywords for that? Because this is going to be such a dominant aspect at the end of the year, especially in November and December, but even as you just said, even in, in October, um, what are some keywords we could generate for Mars opposite Pluto? Well, so paranoia, um, you know, part of the so part of the Mars Pluto dynamic is uh, there's generally a feeling of like somebody like th there's a especially Mars opposite Pluto. There's like, oh, somebody is trying to control me. Um, but then, or you know, like feeling feeling like how should I say heightened sensitivity around like being controlled or manipulated, um, leading to anger responses or outpourings of uh, of rage or frustration, um, and a certain paranoia with that, right? Mars is like somebody's fucking with me from the shadows, 
Um, and of course, going into a retrograde portion, Mars is a little, Mars tends to inspire sort of more confused, twisted up um, uh, behavior and thought patterns anyway, even without Pluto. Yeah, for sure. Um, some of the keywords that I was writing down are things like power struggles, con confrontation, control, obsession, intensity, raw energy, um, power dynamics and power plays or, or power moves, um, hidden motives, and sometimes working behind the scenes to wield power. Um, yeah. Let's see, compulsion, manipulation, secrets. Um, yeah, those are some of the things. And since it's an opposition, like oppositions often are manifested in relationships and in dynamics that involve other people and the tension between opposites or the tensions between two people um, and the ways in which they try to accomplish something. Like Mars tries to accomplish things quickly with force, uh, forcefully, but Pluto sometimes tries to do things with like overwhelming power or through behind the scenes back channels or through mm -hmm. manipulation and control and things like that. And when you put those two things in opposition, it can be really tricky. Um, yeah. It reminds me of some of the keywords we used last October when we were delineating the Mars-Pluto square and like um, the use of power and like going too far um, overuse or abuse of power or even... Um, you used the word at one point of like annihilation or destruction of something that that Mars is the traditional planet of like war and like killing something, but Pluto, when it amplifies Mars, it's like the planet of like destruction and annihilation. Right, uh, like extermination, right? Mars wants to win the battle. Mars doesn't need to um, salt the earth most of the time. Right, but when Pluto, because Pluto takes small things and blows them up and makes them big or magnifies or over magnifies them. And so when Pluto gets involved, it, it goes, it takes things much further than usual. Yeah. And so we, right. So we have that first Mars Pluto, uh, what November 2nd, 3rd, and then we get two more Mars Plutos, but not until 2025. Like this cycle takes a while to resolve itself. Yeah, it does. In the Mars Pluto oppositions, um, the first opposition is exact in Cancer November 3rd, and the second is exact in Leo January 3rd, um, with Pluto station or with Mars stationing on December 6th. So those are some of the crucial dates where it's just, you know, a, a transit that otherwise would go that would come and go pretty quickly is just being extended and drawn out into this um this long experience. And I guess for individuals, they're going to be experiencing that as a super long transit through the Leo and Cancer um, sectors of your chart. And one of the things you can do is look back 15 years because this Mars transit will be a repetition of that. Actually, this the closer parallel to this one is 17 years. The last mm -hmm. Mars retrograde in Cancer was uh, to fall 2007 and into early 2008. Sometimes, you know, sometimes Mars does 17. Most of the time it's 15. Um, but wasn't there one also in Leo like 15 years ago? Yeah, that one was all in Leo. The one in 2007 was mostly in Cancer with a little bit in Gemini. Um, with, you know, the majority of this one is in Cancer. So I don't know. Like they both are kind of a match. The one in Cancer is a better match 
but only only marginally so just because most of this mars retrograde is cancer there's only six out of the like 20 some degrees are in leo sure but it's stations there so i don't know people can look back and compare those two periods the period for the mars retrograde in leo that i'm looking at is december 20th 2009 through march 10th 2010 and that was the mars in leo portion so you can look back and see what kind of things came up especially in terms of um conflicts or severing and separation in that area of your life at that time and it might give you a preview of some of the things that'll come up in the mars and leo portion and then austin your periods would relate more to the cancer leg of things yeah if you're more worried about your planets in cancer look at the end of 2007 if you're more worried about your planets in leo look at 2009 that makes sense all right um that brings us back to november and uh, what else do we have to say about November? Election Day is November um, 5th, which is yeah. two days after Mars goes into Leo. Yeah. And so, you know, all this Mars stuff, well, the sun's in a Mars ruled sign. Um, and so, you know, uh, uh, the what Mars is doing um, is going to be directing the, you know, the central spotlight uh, of that period. I guess one thing that's uh, it's worth noting that Venus is just way ahead of everything else right now. You know, Sun's in Sun's going through uh, Scorpio. Venus is already in Capricorn by the middle of November, um, and the uh, probably one of the most significant things in November is we get Pluto goes back into Aquarius because we yes. have this brief regress of Pluto into Capricorn in September. Um, and now it's back in Aquarius in late November, and that is it for Pluto and Capricorn. It's a it's a wrap. It's Pluto and Aquarius all day, every day um, for the next 20 years. I love the palpable sense of relief that you have every time you talk about that. But then for those of us with Aquarius rising, the... <laughs> Your gleefulness, it does not come off as as well necessarily, but that is a huge shift uh, on we get, November nineteenth. Yeah, we we pass the baton. Right. Okay, it's, I'll take that. It's a poison baton, but you, you did, know. did your time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the other thing that's really weird, aside from Pluto going to Aquarius, which is a huge shift, um, is Mercury stations retrograde later in November on the twenty third. So we get our third and final Mercury retrograde of the year. And it's a little weird to me that it's happening like a few weeks after um, election day because it takes us into December and it takes us into the Mars retrograde when it actually slows down at six degrees of Leo in stations on the 6th of December. Um, and Mar Mercury's only at the halfway point through its retrograde cycle by then because it conjoins the sun at the Kazemi on December 5th. So yeah. there's these themes of like Mercury retrograde, which is like, um, things being revised, things being up in the air, delays, miscommunications, um, controversies surrounding communication gets combined at the same time with an intensification of the principle of Mars, which is like conflict and clashes and like severing and separation all, all happening at the same time. Yeah. And it's worth noting that, you know, as we're getting into Mars being actually retrograde, um, observationally, it's during the heart of Mars's retrograde, that Mars is the closest to us and the brightest and is visible for the greatest proportion of night, right? So Mars retrogrades have a very handy visual cue. Mars will rise um, not too long after the sun sets and, and be very bright and red all night, every night. Um, and this Mercury retrograde um, 
um, makes a variety of trine or makes a has a has a trine with the Mars in Leo, and so there's a direct. Um, uh, should I say there there's a direct uh, ex, uh, there's a direct connection between what is confusing and what what is a conflict that has entered a very complicated phase. You know, just a little bit about Mars retrograde as a phase. You know, Mars uh, there's um, there's a there's uh, uh, there's a saying in in boxing, and there's a variety of versions of this in other combat theaters. Um, but like everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. I believe that was the Mike Tyson version of it. Um, but, um, you know, and I believe the military version is like no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Um, that's that confusion after um, after contact is made where a lot of plans disintegrate. Like that's the energy of Mars retrograde. Like it's its own place where um maybe some of the plans survive but it requires its own navigation and is confusing and complicated in a way that um you know the beginning and the end of the conflict aren't um it's that like complicated middle like okay now we're here so we're here in normandy huh um i like the planning part better yeah and sometimes <clears throat> like a little conflict that you think should come and go and pass by easily becomes extended into a larger conflict, or there's a sense of um, irritation that sticks with you for an extended period of time that you can't get rid of, kind of like eating a hot pepper and having the, you know, trying to wash it down with water or milk, but the taste not going away for hours and like a much extended period of time than you expected. It's peppery. It is peppery. So um, on the positive side, Mercury retrograde is going to end on the 15th of December, right on a full moon in Gemini. And then the last really major alignment that happens, it's kind of a noteworthy alignment, occurs on the 24th of December when Jupiter will square Saturn exactly for the second time in this year. And so for some reason that um, that alignment between these two planets and the sort of tension between Pisces and Gemini, and between the growth and um, conservation aspect of this energy comes back into focus again at the very end of the year. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. So, um, on in one sense, um, December is very unresolved because the biggest thing going on is the Mars retrograde and its um, multiple oppositions with Pluto, and so yeah, the Mercury retrograde gets resolved, but like we've got another what month and a half uh, of this Mars retrograde um, or another month and a half. Yeah. Of this, of, of Mars retrograde into 2025. So very, the Mars stuff is very unresolved. Um, rest of the planets, a lot of them are doing fine, but not Mars, not Mars and Pluto. They're, they're going, they're getting ready for rounds two and three. Yeah. And there's a continuation of a, of a smoldering conflict uh, that isn't resolved until sometime next year yeah and 2025 is a is a hoot let me tell you yeah <laughs> um maybe we should save that maybe we should if we just finished our run through the calendar i know we were going to take a break and then make some final remarks do you want to save that for then sure that, that would be perfect because that's literally a what comes after 2024 that can help contextualize 2024 remark Exactly. 
All right. I wanted to mention I just released my 2024 auspicious elections report where I went through each of the next 12 months and I highlighted fortunate dates during the course of 2024 using the principles of electional astrology. So this gives you insights into the most lucky dates in the year, including ideal projects to launch as well as activities to avoid during different parts of the year using electional astrology. So the report includes a video workshop plus a written report and a PDF of all charts mentioned. So I've been doing this report for five plus years now, and we've found some really great elections during the course of next year that you can use and take advantage of to start different types of projects. The report is useful for both beginner and advanced astrologers, and it provides valuable insights for planning major life events and ventures during the course of the year. So the report is currently on sale for 15% off, but only until January 1st, 2024. So you can find out more or get the report at theastrologypodcast.com slash 2024 report. Um, Austin, what do you got? Well, of my various projects, um, one of them that I'm sort of happiest with the results of is my my partnership with uh, Sphere and Sundry as the electional uh, designer uh, for Sphere and Sundry, which produces, uh, well, the finest talismanic materia. Um, so the Sphere and Sundry project, um, where we've been using um, the methods of the Picatrix to ritually harvest the finest elections since, I guess, the beginning of 2018, um, you know, it, it <clears throat> is... It's a great project. We've probably got, we've done 40 some uh, elections at this point. And so, you know, we've sort of ritually pickled um, <laughs> some of that good Jupiter and Sagittarius from 2018, some of that good Jupiter and Pisces for a little while ago and have a, a variety of other elections. And so this year um, there are a number of operations planned and we've got some in the can already. I know that I'm excited that our Jupiter our Jupiter conjunct the moon and Taurus that we did this fall will be coming out. Um, and there's, there's just a bunch of stuff, you know, literally it's the transits that uh, you wish you could get back. We have uh, effectively pickled, so you should check it out. It's spheerandsundry.com. Brilliant. All right. People should check that out. All right. So I wanted to transition finally uh, to wrap this up and say some concluding remarks, uh, final reflections on the year of 2024, and uh, just kind of bring this to a completion point since we've sort of run through the astrology of this year as best as we can, giving an overview of everything at this point. Um, how are you feeling at this point now that we've reached the likely the ending point of this journey? Tired. That's a good feeling. Uh, eventually, uh, yeah. I will feel satisfied at some point, maybe tomorrow, maybe a week from now. <laughs> yeah. um, it's It's been nice to uh, to discuss all of this in sequence because, you know, like you, I've, been, I've spent, you know, as every spare bit of this month um, cramming my head full of data and trying to understand its meaning and pattern. So it's nice to just lay all the cards on the table and um, talk about the patterns that they form. Yeah, for sure. Um, it was a tense month of research where I tried to research as much as I could about the astrology of next year and found a ton of stuff. I had 40 pages of notes and I tried to condense it down as much as I could for this. 
Um, I'm sure there's stuff that we've overlooked. I'm sure there's going to be some interesting things that'll start becoming more clear as we get into the year. And of course, we'll keep doing these forecasts each month over the course of the next 12 months and checking in periodically to update and and uh, confirm how some of our predictions worked out. Um, but in terms of summarizing things, I mean, one, it's going to be a huge year of technological change and innovation and um things are going to start moving so rapidly in terms of those changes in terms of some of the expansion that i think um you know if if one year ago from today if we compared where things were technologically to today and how how vastly different it is um when i think about the next 20 the next 12 months and where we're going to be 12 months from now it's going to be even just more radically different with pluto firmly being in Aquarius, with Uranus starting to trine Pluto very closely, with Jupiter having conjoined Uranus and then gone into Gemini, um, all of that just screams intense, rapid technological advancement, especially of communications and related technologies to me. And it will be interesting to see both as a tech person, some of the exciting things about that that I'm genuinely excited for and the ways that um, artificial intelligence and technology that we'll be able to use it to enhance our capabilities as humans and improve what we do, like many other technologies have in the past, like you know the invention of paper, um, or the development of space flight, or even flight with hot air balloons or or aviation. There's been so many good technological developments. At the same time, I'm sure we'll also see start to see the drawback and the negative side of technology and the ways in which it can be used to. Um, sort of um to distract us from like sort of living in the natural world as well as the ways in which it can be used as a tool for manipulation and control as well as um starting to widen the gap between or or at least make it more blurry the gap between what's real versus what's not and i think that's something that we'll have to will become very stark this year and that we'll all struggle with to some extent um but ultimately i think even though we're heading into a very important turning point in world history, I, I'm still optimistic, even though there's many difficult things on the horizon and a lot of major challenges, I'm still optimistic about many of the good things that will come out of this year. And I think it's going to be a, a, a year with many wondrous things that we'll look back on very sort of fondly as that being an important turning point for certain good things, as well as certain difficult or bad things. What's your feeling in terms of that? Oh, um, I guess, I mean, this year's interesting. This year's, um, I'm like for the technology, like it gets started this year, but it really gets white hot. Um, 2025, 2026, 2027. There are a lot of things. This year's interesting because I can't dismiss it as sort of a non player. And yet the big, the really big stuff is just around the corner. It's just past 2024. And so 2024 has this interesting quality of with Pluto and Aquarius beginning a, a huge new cycle, like a 20 years. Um, and yet at the same time, we're also finishing up the Neptune and the Uranus. So we're actually ending a 14 year. We're getting ready to end a 14 year and a seven year. And the new Neptune and the new Uranus are just past the boundary of 2024. And so it's kind of the new thing and the new, the new stuff hasn't quite happened yet. 
Um, I think that there's going to be a challenge with 2024 in differentiating between, oh, is this the end of a cycle or is this the beginning of a cycle? Because some of the planets are starting new. Some of the planets are just about to start new, but they need to finish the old. Um, and so there's there's a potential for confusion there um, that I think is going to run throughout the year and is certainly echoed by just Saturn, Neptune, and Pisces being uh, one of our anchor points. Yeah, well, it's certainly a step, a stepping stone or a step stool towards the technological developments that will be the um, not the cornerstone, but the like the star on top of the tree of this decade later in the decade when. Uranus especially trines Pluto at about eight degrees of Gemini. It'll trine Pluto at like eight degrees of Aquarius in a few years, and that's going to be a really important technological turning point. But um, this is the step stool into it, and that Pluto is going into Aquarius for good. And the next year, Uranus is going to go into Gemini for seven years, and that's going to be one of the biggest things about 2025 that is going to cause or correlate with just a complete shift in tone and in chapter and in world history in the year following this one? Yeah, I don't expect 2024 to be geopolitically calm, but the storm, this you know, the storm is 25, 26, 27. Um, like 2024 might seem noisy until you meet 25 and 26. And so again, I don't want to undersell 2024 because there's a lot going on. Um, but what comes after is it, it's not that 2024 is when it gets wild and then it calms down, right? 2025 and six are wilder. Um, and so 2024 is really, uh, you know, it, it, it's situated very interestingly. It's not quite in this new thing and it's uh, we're not quite finished with some other things. It's very one foot in, one foot out. And I think it's going to make it hard to interpret, or it's going to make a lot of things hard to interpret and easy um, to be misled about, either by our own minds or somebody else's mind. Mm, for sure. Yeah. And the Saturn-Neptune uh, conjunction that gets so close this year will not help with that. Uh, and then that's something in 2025 that it also will grow much more intense than it will be in 2024. And yet 2024 is the most intense we've had that energy in a while. So it's going to be another stepping stool and transition into what that's going to be like and those tensions between reality and unreality. Yeah. Or, and what you didn't know could be reality, but is on its way. Right. For sure. Um, so I do want to say I'm genuinely concerned about the U.S. as a country and like the state of democracy and, and the potential for a serious threat to democracy this year with just all of the like astrology indicating this being a really important turning point in terms of American history and the way that that's going to go. Um, obviously, there's going to be a lot of high drama over the course of the year, and we're going to be checking back in about that and tracking it at different points. Um, but I'm hoping that in the long term, whatever comes from this year, whether it's positive or negative, that in the like long span of history, that we're still moving in a good direction where there's still going to be progress made in different areas um, over the long scope of time, even if there's setbacks or steps backwards that occur at certain points as well. Just like there's always like a retrograde cycle for most of the planets where 
there's this curve and the planet turns around and appears to move backwards for a period of time. But sometimes that process of moving backwards for a period of time is necessary in order to move forward again and achieve true progress. Yeah, well, you know, uh, uh, if we're, you know, just using the pivotal Uranus in Gemini years for the United States, um, they've all been, the country's been in a rough state going into them, aka right now. Um, and it's wild uh, in the midst of the Uranus and Gemini years. And so far, the last three instances, uh, things have looked way better on the way out than they did on the way in. You know, sometimes a storm clears the air. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. And sometimes genuine progress is made during those periods of difficulty, even if there's huge loss and cat catastrophe and other things in the process. Like, for example, during like the Civil War when Uranus was going through Gemini, um, but the the major advancements in terms of civil rights that took place during the course of that. Yeah, I mean the you know, the result was a better United States. Right. You know, I don't think the Revolutionary War was that fun, as I understand. There was a lot of freezing and starving. Um, things ended up better on the other side, and World War II is, you know, perhaps history's greatest nightmare. Um, and yet the United States goes in only half recovered from the depression um, and comes out um, with greater, uh, well, with, um, yeah, better outcomes than any other country and um, moves into a period where we had the greatest middle class. We, um, uh, we made advancements in civil rights there, you know, like the, the United States out of World War II is undeniably better than going in. Not to say it was perfect uh, or beyond criticism in any of these cases, um, but, you know, the Uranus so far it looks like we're on track, looks pretty fraught going in. There's a storm coming and then um, hopefully we'll we'll do four for four where things look way better um, and meaningfully better on the other side of it. Yeah, that's really good. And you had mentioned the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction in 2020 at one point and how that set up a new cycle that will last for a long time in terms of the air triplicity shift. Um, but it's also worth mentioning that this year is the square between Jupiter and Saturn that mm -hmm. follows that conjunction. So whatever the foundation was that that conjunction laid for the world and in society at the very end, the culmination of 2020 in December of 2020, when Jupiter and Saturn aligned in Uranus, um, this is the next step. And it's a bit of a challenge in that, in, in the foundation was laid at that time, we'll reach some sort of challenge or some sort of tension and turning point. Um, but from that tension, there'll also be growth and the progress of that cycle into, um, into the future and into whatever the next positive chapter is of that as well. It'll be yeah. like push, pushing humanity forward in some way, whatever that takes. Yeah. Well, and just while we're talking about the United States, we are, uh, the end of Pluto and Capricorn does mean the end of the Pluto return for the United States or whatever that's worth. Yeah, and which is something I've been emphasizing a lot this year because I was worried about some of the things that were happening and whether with the democracy and stuff, but now like researching more about how the constitution came into being and was ratified during the early phases of um, Pluto and Aquarius, I'm um, nervous that some of the things we talked about with that at that time and the potential challenge to, or even whether there would be a challenge to the structure of that, whether some of that it's actually more 
localized in the early phases of, of Pluto and Aquarius and whether challenges to the constitution or to the system of checks and balances and the way that the US is set up, if it, if that isn't what's coming with the, the Pluto transit through early Aquarius now. Interesting. Well, fortunately, historically, Pluto and Aquarius likes um uh likes doesn't like despots, does like choices. You know, if you look at the religious, uh, you look at the Reformation, um, that was basically a um, what should we say, uh, a move away from hierarchy with a king figure. Um, and in uh, although the the French Revolution had its problems, which verged on atrocity at several points. It certainly wasn't pro. It certainly wasn't uh, pro despotism. Um, I think. Right. That you, I think Pluto and Aquarius will, um, you know, is is certainly not on the side of, uh, uh, yeah, not not on the side of uh, God emperors. It's not in the long term, but in the short term, there's always this last gasp of attempting to control and manipulate and hold on to power and to um, demolish the checks and balances that that keep things level. Um, like for example, like Napoleon, it's like we had the French Revolution, and you had those ideas of democracy and stuff, but then all of a sudden Napoleon sweeps in and he sets up like a new monarchy for a period of time. But he, but he doesn't get to do that while Pluto's in Aquarius. Well, it didn't get to last. It was meant ultimately to fail, but I guess the point is just sometimes there's this backwards and forward motion of like uh despots and people trying to centralize power and take it in their own hands and control everything but then the the masses sort of trying to wrestle that away at the same time and ultimately being successful but there's still a struggle in the process i think uh there'll be plenty of struggle over the next seven eight years <laughs> yeah all right well um let's leave it on a positive note Positive note, I really like a lot of the trines. As I've said, a lot of technological development, communication development, um, the Jupiter-Uranus conjunction, you know, there are a lot of good things to be positive about, and there's going to be a lot of new beginnings that are, are good for different people at various stages, even if there's a lot of craziness that's going on in the world at the same time. I mean, you, for example, I think about you and your family and some of the great stuff that's going to be happening around that time period. Um, in terms of like bringing new life into the world. And that's a great reminder that, um, you know, sometimes even when really crazy stuff's happening or when old structures are being demolished, sometimes it's clearing the way for new structures and new life to to grow and to flourish. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, we've all got our own charts. Like this is just the transits this year. Um, right. You know, what is happening in the news is not your life. Like that is something you can know about. It may or may not affect you, but like, we all have our own paths, charts, trajectories, luck, misfortune, destiny, et cetera, et cetera. Like our, we are not the chart of, you know, May of 2024 or October of 2024. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah. So, and as for us, we're going to be astrologers and whatever happens, we're going to keep coming back each month and studying it and just like marveling at the amazing ways in which the universe and the cosmos and the planets um, move in tandem with humanity and often reflect in the sky what what's going on down here on Earth. 
And there's going to be a lot of fun and interesting stuff to study this year. So we're going to keep coming back every month and doing the monthly forecast episodes and doing that dual process of, on the one hand, reflecting on what's happened in the past month and how the astrology played out so that we can record that for history, and then turning around and doing the other part of that, which is to look ahead at the future and try to make predictions about what's coming up. Um, and that dual process uh, is something that's really special that I've come to really appreciate over the past few years. And um, yeah, in the contributions that we're kind of making to the astrological community, as well as just how fun and interesting it is to study all of this stuff from this vantage point as astrologers, it's truly, you know, like a gift. And I feel blessed to be able to, to do that. So uh, thanks, Austin, for doing this together with me, for partnering with me to go on this journey together to try to predict the future. Um, and thanks to everybody in the audience. We've got a great audience of patrons today who joined us, who's been chiming in and supporting us through this, which I really appreciate and has supported my work and research in order to allow me to do this. And thanks to the audience on YouTube and listening at home on podcasts and everything else for listening and joining us on this journey as well. Um, it's been It's been fun. Yeah, eight and a half years so far, just this show. Yeah, we started in 2015, in the summer of 2015. And yeah, we've learned so much. I feel like I've grown so much as an astrologer, growing and observing all these things. And it's been really, really fun and interesting. And I can see that this year is going to be another year where we're going to learn a ton as astrologers just by watching all this stuff happen. Yeah, there's a lot of grab the popcorn moments this year. Like, okay, how is this going to play out? Right. I'm looking forward to those comments. Like, comments is going to be new. I think that's a new and interesting area of research for astrologers. I'm going to try to put that episode together. I may also put together a Pluto and Aquarius episode. Um, there's a lot of good episodes that could just be individual things that we've only touched on or like brushed past during the course of this episode, despite how long it was. Um, but yeah, there's lots of other things to research. So we're going to be back again here soon to look at some of those things. Indeed. All right, buddy. Well, thanks a lot for joining me today for this episode. Um, what do you have going on in terms of your personal work and things you're putting together or offerings that you have? Yeah. So I guess three things. One, um, first, I've got to get the second edition of 36 Faces done basically in January and February. Got a super right. hard deadline. Got a kid on the way. Um, Got to get it done. Fortunately, January's skies look like they're going to cooperate with me. Um, two, I'll continue to be doing my um, my educational program, the Fundamentals of Astrology. Um, there's a year one enrollment in June, tentatively scheduled for June 14th. Um, and then third, I will continue to uh, to elect for Sphere and Sundry. Um, we've got some fun stuff coming out. There's a uh, as I mentioned earlier, really nice uh, Moon and Taurus uh, with Jupiter series that we did in the fall um, that'll be coming out earlier this year. The sort of Uber project that Kate did, which was taking seven individual projects and elections, one for each of the visible planets, and then ritually combining them into one magnum opus, Thema Mundi. Um, that's uh, that's uh, that's uh, available again for a little bit this um, during the first quarter. Um, it's awesome stuff. There are like 30 some series from the last six and a half years. So strongly suggest that. But yeah, book, teach, um, and then elect and magic. Those are the the three things. Brilliant. What's your website? 
it's austincopic.com and sphere and sundry is spheerandsundry.com. Cool. And I'll put a link to your website in the description below this episode on YouTube or on the podcast website. Um, as for myself, like I mentioned earlier, my electional report is out and it's on sale for 15% off until January 1st. And that gives you all of the most auspicious or lucky dates for starting new ventures and undertakings next year. You can find that at theastrologypodcast.com slash 2024 report. Um, elsewhere, I just released my posters where some of the graphics we used for the monthly breakdown during the later part of this episode, I actually release as a print poster that you can put on your wall to easily glance at what the transits are going to be at during different parts of the year. And I'm doing a 10% off sale on that until January 1st if you use the promo code JUPITER during checkout. So you can find that at theastrologypodcast.com slash merch. Um, other than that, I teach my approach to astrology in a bunch of different online courses that I teach through my website at courses.theastrologyschool.com. So if you want to learn astrology, you can go there. And finally, if you want to support my work on the podcast and my ability to do this research, as well as get access to bonus content like early access to new episodes or exclusive episodes only for subscribers, uh, sign up for my page on Patreon at patreon.com slash astrologypodcast, and then you'll be able to join us in the live chat every time we do one of these episodes each month for the monthly forecast episodes. So I think that's it um, for me, though, in terms of things I have going on. Um, thanks a lot for joining me for this, Austin. I'm happy to have done the 2024 forecast with you, and I look forward to continuing to do the astrology with you next year over the course of the next 12 months. Yeah, me too. I'm going to have to miss some of my first, I'm going to have to um, be missing in action for the first time in the history of the podcast, like March, April, because I will be busy. Right. Well, maybe at least at some point you can start training your perhaps replacement at some point. Maybe they could join you on the podcast at some point or make an appearance at some point during the course sure, of the I'm year. Sure, I'm sure there'll be uh, there'll be an adorable cameo at some point. Okay, good. We do good. Kittens and babies. We'll save it for a really uh, horrid month. Um, okay. Yeah, I like that. All right, cool. Well, I think that's it for this episode then. So thanks everyone for watching this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Good luck to you next year in 2024. And we'll see you again for the year ahead forecast one year from now for the forecast uh, for 2025 in December of 2024. So good luck this year. Have a great one. And we'll see you again next time. Take care. Keep your powder dry, my friends. Shout out to our sponsor for this episode, which is the Chani app, the number one astrology app for self-discovery, mindfulness, and healing. You can download it on the Apple App Store or on Google Play, or for more information, visit app.chani.com. Special thanks to all the patrons that helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including patrons Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Jeannie Marie Kaplan, and Melissa Delano. If you're looking for a reliable astrologer to get an astrological consultation with, then we have a new list of astrologers on the podcast website that we recommend for readings. Most of the astrologers specialize in birth chart readings, although some also offer synastry, rectification, electional astrology, horary questions, and more. Find out more information at theastrologypodcast.com slash consultations. The astrology software that we use and recommend here on the podcast is called Solar Fire for Windows, 
which is available for the PC at alabe.com. Use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we recommend a software program called Astro Gold for Mac OS, which is from the creators of SolarFire for PC, and it includes both modern and traditional techniques. You can find out more information at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount. If you'd like to learn more about my approach to astrology, then I'd recommend checking out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, where I go over the history, philosophy, and techniques of ancient astrology, taking people from beginner up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. If you're really looking to expand your studies of astrology, then I would recommend my Hellenistic Astrology course, which is an online course on ancient astrology where I take people through basic concepts up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. There's over 100 hours of video lectures as well as guided readings of ancient texts, and by the time you finish the course you will have a strong foundation in how to read birth charts as well as make predictions. You can find out more information at courses.theastrologyschool.com. And finally, thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which is a quarterly astrology magazine which you can read in print or online at mountainastrologer.com. And the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening both in person and online May 23rd through the 27th, 2024. You can find out more information at norwac.net.